0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Bespoke Post, Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, Betterment, Health IQ, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's
1: show possible. In our last two episodes, we barely scratched the surface of Edgar Casey's remarkable life. As the sleeping prophet, he conducted readings for thousands of people, providing guidance on how to cure ailments and improve their lives. We talked about the predictions of the future he made— prophecies, some of which seem to have come to pass, others haven't, or didn't transpire as he said they would. In all of this, he was very well known for sharing information about one particular place for nearly half of the 1,600 people that came to see him for what he called a life-reading. It would seem that 700 of those folks had lived in the lost continent of Atlantis in a past life. Upon hearing Atlantis mentioned repeatedly during these readings, the group that was working with Casey were then curious enough that they initiated a series of sessions asking specifically about this topic. That almost half of the reading subjects were reincarnated Atlanteans is, of course, surprising, but not as surprising as the details of life in that legendary land and what led to its eventual downfall, according to Casey.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest
1: Burgess. I must warn you though, that if you persist in reading this book, you may never be able to return to our so-called real world of facts without the nagging suspicion that the fantastic events depicted just might be tainted with the truth. Hugh Lynn Casey from the introduction of the book, Edgar Casey on Atlantis. Join us tonight for the third part of our three-part
0: series on The Sleeping Prophet, Edgar Casey. And we're back. Well, that we are, folks. We are back with part three of our Casey series. A quick reminder, we are dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new
1: show. Unless I travel off to the land of Atlantis to some kind of a warp, Middle Earth, wacky spaceship thing. Well, I just disappear. Yeah. I, there's all kinds of connections to other realms, shall we say, if I'm whisked away to the higher planes. To the higher planes. Well, I hope you'll send a message back, <laughs> whatever way that you can. Uh- no, I'll, I'll be glad to have the vacation, is what I'm saying. You
0: know, we haven't done that thing that most people do that do what we do, which is make some kind of pact about like whoever dies first has got to send a message back from the other side. We got, to, <laughs> we got to figure out how can we prove it? We have to put like a secret number in an envelope or something. Does that
1: have to be, uh, well, how formal does it have to be? Does it have to be notarized? I, I, don't, know. I don't have the time or energy to really write up a, a draft, a contract. But that's really interesting you brought that up because I had just seen a story, and I believe it was in our terrific Facebook group where people, were talking about past lives and making that connection and with somebody whose father was really into the subject of the paranormal and they had made an agreement to send some kind of communication and not to spoil it but it seems that communication came through with their child Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was a cool little anecdote. I loved it.
0: I've mentioned this on the show before. I had an aunt that we'd love to talk about this stuff, and she always said, we made a deal, and then I don't think I ever heard from her. Uh, And if there was anyone I thought I was going to hear
1: from, I thought it was going to be her, so. No, I've heard of other people doing that and making that, and you just don't know where people go. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's true. I think some people hang around. Uh, You had your famous incident with your friend. Yes, Don, that we mentioned in Arkapalooza. for
0: people that want to hear that the 100th episode special, which was a two-part. Of course, 100 and 101, I think. Yeah. I told my story about that. Yeah, that's true. I did hear from Don, at least I'm I'm pretty sure I did anyway, so.
1: Yeah, and one of the more famous ones that I was glad to find some more information on, and there's a pretty good write-up, I believe by Greg Newkirk and WeakandWeird.com, their website there, about Houdini and people thinking like, well, oh, yeah. his wife Beth never received a message, and so that's to be debunked, but he points out that there's some compelling Clues that that might have happened. Houdini may have communicated from the other side, but that's often ignored. Uh, and the other one is Forrest Ackerman. Do you remember him, the, the special effects whiz for a lot of sci-fi films? Yeah. And it seems he also had a communication agreement, I believe... With somebody else in the film business, and they may have found some evidence of some sort on film. Oh. I'm very vague on the story. We got to dig that up. Well, we got to look into that. Let's put that on for that other show we're talking about planning. It's something that may have ended up in a few frames of film. Oh, very cool. His saying hello from the other side. Don't tell me it's a standee of Ted Danson in the Curtains. I'm not <laughs> no, I know that story very well, though, because I actually worked on the uh, marketing of that film at the time, and so... Just look that up. That's for three men and a baby. Yeah, it is. We got a a long show tonight. Let's move it along. yeah, Yeah, let's get down to business.
0: Before we dive back in, I just want to remind everybody that permission has been granted by the Edgar Cayce Foundation to share the portions of his readings that are going to be quoted in tonight's show. These readings are the property of the foundation and copyrighted in 1971, as well as 1993 through 2007. All rights are reserved. And for something else that I feel bad we didn't mention before is that the Association for Research Enlightenment, which curates all of his readings to this day, is a nonprofit. I did want to point that out to people. It's a nonprofit organization, so—
1: Right. Well, people do ask, uh, how do I access these readings online? And it is required to sign up as a member to access their database, or you can go to their location on the second floor of the visitor center, I think is where the libraries are, and you can check it out there. But I think that goes back to that case where they were trying to conduct a sting and say, said, well, from now on, okay, you have to be a member to get a reading. And then you had to agree that you were undergoing an experimentation. So that gave them some protections legally from people just coming in off the street and then claiming like, hey, I didn't know this was going to happen and so forth. But yes, if you sign up online, you have access to their entire database of readings. All right, so what's our jumping off point tonight, Forrest? Well, let's start with the title, Atlantis. That alone sparks such ideas in people. Either you think, wow, what a great legend and fanciful and It's a mystical place, and NASA apparently thought enough of it to name one of their space shuttles Atlantis and put that name on the side of one in Helvetica. And for other people, though, as we're going to find out, it has a much deeper meaning and a more serious meaning, and it's not just fabled. They believe there may have been a real lost continent, and it's not just Casey supporters. There are people who do their own oceanographic study and they believe that they found evidence and these aren't all just quacks. People have found geological formations on the ocean floor that they believe may be pointing to at least land that was above water In the far distant past. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to
0: point out real quick is that Atlantis is a huge, huge topic. And that's not exactly what the show is about tonight. The show tonight is really about how it intersects with Edgar Cayce. And we want to be clear on that. In the future, if it's something that people are interested in, we might come back to the topic of Atlantis. But it's easily, especially with the stuff we've uncovered in the past couple of weeks, it's easily a multi-part series, even if you take Edgar Cayce completely out of the equation. And that's something that we may address in a future episode. Let's go ahead and say not before 2021. But (laughs) if (laughs) you want to give us a little breathing room. Yeah, if people are clamoring for it, I honestly have to say that the things we've uncovered have really fascinated me. And it's not something I was necessarily particularly interested in until we started digging down on this. The information that
1: we've come across has intrigued me, frankly. Well, it has implications, not just geologically, because that would be a big one. How does a whole continent disappear? And that was very controversial. And there's been people, I would say, since the, at least since the turn of the century, up to today, that argue back and forth. Now, of course, there is still no concrete widely acceptable proof for a lost continent of Atlantis or even some islands, but there are a lot of serious scholars who can point to some interesting facts that might make you change your mind. However, I thought of this subject because, of course, it's tie-in with Edgar Casey, and that I read this book, Edgar Casey on Atlantis, a long time ago, maybe a couple of decades ago, and it just stuck with me as this is one far-out fantastic tale and whether you believe it or not, or if you believed in Edgar Cayce or not, and I'd certainly heard a little bit about him, and then this is, I think, the first one of his books that I fully read, cover to cover, rather than just some readings here and there and some biographies about him. And you come away going, wow, I, this is just, yeah, he tells you the entire history of humans on this planet, not just Atlantis. And it's going to be very hard for a lot of people to accept or give any credence to. I think a lot of people will be intrigued to hear the story, and I think a few of them might even start to wonder what is the ancient truth.
0: Yeah, and he does all that in 160 pages. I think <laughs> this is a <laughs> paperback that we have now. Yeah. Um, but which is a quick read. 100 and yeah, sixty-nine, hundred and seventy 170 pages, really, if you go all the way to the epilogue. So
1: there is a lot of information crammed in a pretty small amount of space there. Right. Well, we're going to talk about what types of information, and, and there's a couple of different books on Edgar Casey talking about Atlantis, and the one that we decided to read, it has an explanation as you go along. We're going to explain that further, but I just wanted to say Again, no matter what you believe, when I got done reading this, I thought, man, if none of this is true, it's some of the best science fiction I've read in a while. Yeah, <laughs> Seriously, it's. Uh, it would be hard to imagine this guy, who was not a science fiction writer, coming up with some of these ideas. And in the 1920s and 1930s, that's another thing. If this was 1950s sci-fi, would be like, okay, these are ideas bounced around pretty commonly. George some McFly. Yeah, he got <laughs> some things he got, some things were off. I'll tell you, there's a lot more 50 sci-fi that I've read that is even more outrageous than this, which is that careful balance of, well, geez, it doesn't sound that crazy when you think of the technology we're using today. But let's back up now and take a look at the widely accepted general definition of Atlantis. And what better place to do that than the Encyclopedia Britannica? And I actually had a twinge of nostalgia there, remembering those huge sets of big brown books that everybody had. Well, you had different brands. There was uh, Collier's. And and back in the day, when you didn't have computers in the internet, you had books. And people would have sets of these. That it was expensive, so you might get a few at a time. So like, well, we're working ourselves up to S-T-U. Yeah. Don't look up anything past W. No, it was really expensive. Yeah. I had a set too, and I wish I still
0: did. You know, you can find them on eBay now. That and Childcraft, which was the one for kids. That was a (laughs) good one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Had all kinds of acetate overlays that you could see through person's body and stuff like that. It was cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, if you got the book space, and they're probably outdated now, but uh, I tend to trust those more than, uh, I don't know, maybe 90% of the stuff I see on the internet on a daily basis. Yeah. (laughs) Just because it's in print, you you tend to trust it more. Well, what do they have to say about the lost and legendary continent of Atlantis? And I think, just for expediency and clarity, and it's much better writing than we could do, I'm just going to read the entry. Okay. I approve. (laughs) All All right. right. Very good. So, from the Encyclopedia Britannica, Atlantis, also spelled Atalantis or Atlantica, is a legendary island in the Atlantic Ocean. Now, where did that name come from?
0: Well, it didn't... It's not Atlantic for Atlantis, which is the first thing that I thought when we learned this. It turns out... I certainly
1: did as a kid, sure. yeah,
0: Yeah, yeah. The name Atlantic was first used during the era of Herodotus in ancient Greece around 450 BC and derives its meaning from Greek mythology. In the Greek language, Atlantic is loosely translated to mean the island of Atlas or sea of Atlas. So the earliest writings that mention the Atlantic Ocean are actually attributed to, you guessed it, Plato, Ah. which is who we're talking about now. And I took that from uh, worldatlas.com. It's a special entry about how the Atlantic Ocean was named. And we'll put that link in our show notes. But yeah. I like that. So it's not necessarily named for Atlantis, but Atlantis and the Atlantic Ocean are probably more likely both named for
1: Atlas. Well, in any case, Atlantis was thought to be lying west of the Strait of Gibraltar. The principal sources for the legend are two of Plato's dialogues, Timaeus and Critias. In the former, Plato describes how Egyptian priests, in conversation with the Athenian lawgiver Solon, described Atlantis as an island larger than Asia Minor and Libya combined, and situated just beyond the pillars of Hercules, which is near the Strait of Gibraltar. About 9,000 years before the birth of Solon, the priest said Atlantis was a rich island whose powerful princes conquered many of the lands of the Mediterranean until they were finally defeated by the Athenians and the latter's allies. The Atlanteans eventually became wicked and impious, and their island was swallowed up by the sea as a result of earthquakes.
0: Now wait, who's the and that information is coming from Plato or from Mister? That is
1: Plato's story. This is right. from the Encyclopedia Britannica. So we haven't even begun to get into woo woo territory. This is just the Encyclopedia Britannica and what everybody believes in a classical Greek sense, coming from Plato. Right. So the real question, though, is, and I assure you, we'll get into
0: this a little bit more, but uh-huh. the real question is: Is Plato telling a real story or an allegory?
1: Right. Well, that's the question. Yeah. Where did he get his information? And if Casey had no connection to that, how did he come up with it? So you're going to have to take all this in and make up your own mind. Well, back to the Encyclopedia Britannica definition here. In the Critias, Plato supplied a history of the ideal commonwealth of the Atlanteans. Atlantis is probably a mere legend, but medieval European writers who received the tale from Arab geographers believed it to be true. And later, writers tried to identify it with an actual country. After the Renaissance, for example, attempts were made to identify Atlantis with America, Scandinavia, and the Canary Islands. The story of Atlantis, if Plato did not invent it, may in fact reflect ancient Egyptian records of a volcanic eruption on the island of Thera about 1500 BCE. This eruption, one of the most stupendous of historical times, was accompanied by a series of earthquakes and tsunamis that shattered civilization on Crete, thereby perhaps giving rise to the legend of Atlantis. Ah, that's very
0: interesting. Well, in another vein, I did want to talk to you about whether or not if I came across some kind of fact-checking correction, if you'd rather <laughs> make that next week or go ahead
1: and do it now in this episode. No, no. I usually like to wait 20 or 30 minutes into the show to yeah. call back to something people have forgotten about well, because they're onto another task. That's what we
0: could do because no one cares, and maybe nobody would have busted us on this, but I uh-huh. did just happen to notice while I was looking at some stuff while you were going on and on about sure. Atlantis. I,
1: I know, yeah, you're not paying attention. Yes, I, <laughs>
0: yeah. I happened that's to okay. notice that the space shuttle Atlantis was not in fact named for the lost continent of Atlantis. Really? It was named, yes, no, it wasn't. It was in fact named after a research vessel used from 1930 to 1966 by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute to study marine life on the ocean floor. So the shuttle was named after that, which makes more sense. It was not actually named after Atlantis.
1: Uh, Well, of course, two things here. One, that would be around the time that Edgar Casey was doing readings about Atlantis. Yes. Which is weird. Secondly, well what do they name the boat after? They named it after Atlantis, right? Yes, it was a two-masted
0: sailing vessel. I got this off of dictionary.com, and that was in fact named after the lost city of Atlantis. So okay, then
1: by proxy here, then one, one, one vessel after the other. The, then really, the space shuttle was named after the fabled lost continent of Atlantis. Uh,
0: right? Well, in the end, you were wrong. It's because okay. There's a there's a boat in between <laughs> there.
1: Of course, we couldn't have uh, the the fabled NASA institution getting that kind of wacky. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that's right. They have to protect themselves. All in a very roundabout way to say that the idea and name of Atlantis is firmly entrenched in society. Exactly. To quote you. (laughs) <laughs> ah, very good. very good well we all have ideas of what it was and as a kid i certainly uh i well i was in college uh, during the spatial program and i thought like man that's cool without of course looking up in the internet because i didn't have a computer then where they actually named it or bothered to learn that but it's just been around for so long i grew up knowing about it and even if you have never heard the edgar casey version it's a fabled fantastic idyllic place And we don't want to go too far into the classical definition of it, because that's another show, as Scott said. That could be a whole other series. But let's take a look at what Edgar Cayce said about it. Now, to start this off, I kind of want to explain what you're going to be hearing as far as the readings go and how they were presented and what they mean here. And to start this off, why are there even Edgar Cayce readings? Why is there even a book about it, a compendium, a collection? Well, this is from the ARE of New York, Casey community website. They have their own chapter there. And I just thought I'd read this because it kind of sums it up. During Casey's otherworldly journeys, he would often reveal the past lives of those who would come to him for information concerning their health. A number of people who came to Casey were told by him that they had past lives in the legendary lost land of Atlantis. In fact, Casey revealed that a vast number of souls who lived past lives in Atlantis have been incarnating to America for a long time now to usher in a new era of enlightened human consciousness. In all, Casey referred to Atlantis no fewer than 700 times over a span of 20 years. Well, can we just back up there? So there's a new
0: era of enlightened human consciousness because I don't feel like... I feel like maybe that's an alternate timeline from the
1: one we're in. (laughs) Boy, I hope so. Well, you know what's funny is... (laughs) I think I asked my dad this and uh, we were talking about the founding fathers and like, wow, they invented a document still still around today, not, not thrown out because, man, this is not PC. Yeah. This is, look at the wording of this. It's terrible. You can't refer to this. We're still using it. Obviously, who of us has written anything that's still valid five years from now or a week later. Well, I've written a bunch of cold opens that I think will stand the test of time for our show, so. And that's why Scott and I don't ever listen to any shows- uh, <laughs> After they go out. That we've done, yeah, <laughs> probably after a week and we've conceded them. Yeah. The point being is that with the Founding Fathers, like, asking my dad, like, man, these are really, they were really smart guys and, and knew their stuff and they all, they had slightly differing opinions, but they got along, they agreed at least to get this country going and I said, wouldn't it be nice if those types of minds were around? And he said something interesting, which was, well, people like that come around when they're needed and they were needed then. So hopefully, yeah, if Casey's right and these souls are coming back, hopefully they can help. If you believe any of this at all. <laughs> and you, a lot of people aren't going to be. Certainly, Edgar Casey did not himself. I want to point that out as well. He did not know what to think about all this stuff. He'd been saying himself after he came out of his sleep-like state, he could not reconcile it with his own traditional Christian beliefs. So for somebody who'd read the Bible every year of his life and knew it very well and had his own doctrinal beliefs, he was able to reconcile all this and make it fit. And as you'll see, it gets pretty nutty, but he eventually had to accept it somehow himself. Well, there's a couple of books about
0: Casey that we're going to be pulling from tonight. One of them is Atlantis by Edgar Casey, which, Forrest, I'll let you speak to because you're the one that took a look at that one. Uh, that's mostly just his readings on Atlantis edited together.
1: Yeah. Therefore, I didn't look at it very long because they are hard to read. So. They are hard to read.
0: They are hard to read. It's it's a bit of a, it's a stream of consciousness vibe. And... There's not really a subject predicate thing happening in all of it, really.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to explain that here uh, in a minute, but mostly it's just the readings themselves. So you can get a flavor for what was actually said without a lot of commentary, but we needed some commentary. So we actually looked to the book that that was the one that I first read. and was Edgar Casey on Atlantis, and that was copyrighted in 1968 and written by his younger son, Edgar Evans Casey, and edited by his eldest son. Hugh Lynn Casey and Edgar Evans takes his father's passages and makes commentaries on them with some insights and puts a lot of supporting evidence for some of the things that he said while in this sleep-like state and puts it all together. So it's very readable. And here's an interesting factoid from the book. At the time
0: of Casey's death, 14,306 readings had been done for 8,000 people over 40 years three years, and the Association for Research and Enlightenment, which copyrighted and published the book, came up with the following statistics for that. Sixty percent of those readings were physical diagnoses, twenty percent of them were what they called life readings— and 20% fell under the category of other, which is miscellaneous stuff like business, mental health, spiritual themes, dream analysis, and that sort of thing. But of the 2,500 life readings that were on file for 1,600 different people, 700 of those people during their readings had incarnations in Atlantis, according to Casey. That's nearly 50% of everyone who got a life reading from him.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think over the course of uh, those 43 years, he had mentioned over 10,000 different subjects. And the research organization and volunteers and researchers have all cross indexed those and kind of sifted through them to see where the subjects lined up. And that's how you get all these readings that it specifically mentioned reincarnation and Atlantis.
0: Yeah, the fascinating thing was that over all these years, he was having lots of different sessions and recalling information relating to Atlantis. And there was two different things going on here that I think we need to explain. It was something I didn't really understand until late in our research, was that there were readings where people came to see him for life readings, and those people were told during those readings that they had had a previous incarnation where they were in Atlantis. And then he would describe what they did or what their job there was, and through that information you would glean information about how Atlantis worked. Right. But what happened later was the foundation was realizing, oh, we're getting so many readings about Atlantis that they began to have them just about Atlantis where there wasn't necessarily a subject for him to do a reading on. It was just about getting more information about Atlantis, right? Yeah. So this went on for decades, and during that time, he never contradicted himself with the information that he got with regard to any of the people who he had said had previous incarnations in Atlantis or the information that he got specifically during the readings about Atlantis it all jibed with itself which is a pretty impressive task i would say and i'm not pitching the tent here for mr casey and saying oh you got to believe him but i'm just saying it is interesting barring you having sort of a savant-like skill to make up a world and keep track of all the details and really do all this stuff and also be able to do that in such a way that when someone tries to pry your fingernail off, you don't wake up. (laughs) That's a serious thing to try to wrap your head around. Regardless of whether or not it's made up or fictional, it's a monumental feat just to have all that
1: stuff come together and not contradict itself. Absolutely, and his sons and everyone around him, that was present for these readings also thought so as well, and so did Casey himself again, because because if you believe that he just wasn't pulling everybody's leg, that he did have some kind of weird savant ability, and that was noted. But one thing here I wanted to say is that these weren't just tangents on, oh, by the way, uh, just for throwing this in for fun to get your three dollars worth here for the reading, or, or however much they charged to cover the price of uh, of Gladys to transcribe it and all the paper and the mailing and all that to take care of that. It wasn't just a random thing to, to jazz up a reading. The intelligence coming through him believed that it was important to the current health of the person to know what they did in the past and that in a karmic kind of way, and Casey believed that as well, he would say that there were karmic proportions to this, that the stuff that you were doing way back when you'll keep doing unless you learn to better your ways. And there's ways to go about that. But if you keep repeating the same mistakes, then you're just bound to repeat them in other lifetimes later on. Well, well, I just wanted to mention that the preface of this book, Edgar Cayce on Atlantis, was written by the elder child, Hugh Lynn Cayce, and states that in the 20 to 21-year period between 1924 and 1944, the hundreds of readings and mentions of Atlantis are quote, the most fantastic, the most bizarre, the most impossible information in the Edgar Casey files. Uh, and then he goes on to say, my brother, the author, and I know that Edgar Casey, which would be their dad, did not read Plato's material on Atlantis or books on Atlantis, and that he, so far as we know, had absolutely no knowledge of this subject. If his unconscious fabricated this material or wove it together from existing legends and writings, we believe that is the most amazing example of a telepathic clairvoyant scanning of existing legends and stories in print or of the minds of persons dealing with the Atlantis theory. As my brother and I have said from time to time, life would be simpler if Edgar Cayce had never mentioned Atlantis, (laughs) which I thought is a great line because you've just now opened up a can of worms and the critical eye all thinking you're crazy because of what he said about it. And it is a very controversial subject. It's, it's enlightening in very metaphysical ways, but it is far out and it is pretty hard to prove. So where does that leave us? Well, there are some ways to look at that. But first, I have to agree with you, Scott. It's quite a feat if you're just pulling everyone's leg. Because as Edgar Evans also says later in the book, quote, the least that can be said about Edgar Casey is that when asleep, he had a remarkable memory. Wait a second, did I say Atlantis? I, I think you might have, which <laughs> okay. I like. It's it. late. Yeah, yeah, it is it is. Well it's late. like it's somebody who does they deal in Atlantis. They're they're an Atlantis. <laughs> You're an Atlantis. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well yeah. it's like yeah, John it's Wayne real and word. the shootist. Yeah, I don't know if that's a real word, but he was the shootest. Yes, good point. Uh, (laughs) Valid point. Yeah, my point here, though, (laughs) is that it's quite a feat. And what's interesting about Edgar Evans' quote is that, of course, it's their dad. So they're not going to say that he was a quack, he was a habitual liar, or he was crazy because they know him better than that. And I guess they would have to be in on it. But they are looking at it as a psychic phenomenon. But they just don't know if it is coming from... His psychic abilities to tap into just what current legends are and other readings and writings and Plato and all the stuff that they claim that he never had access to? Or on the other hand, is it coming from somewhere else? Is it coming from a higher intelligence, this universal consciousness? And then what do you do with that? Because it's, again, some of the most far out stuff you'll ever hear. And going back past the history of humans, so it's really hard for everyone to swallow themselves included the Casey family. Well, this other book uh, from the copyright 2009 edition of Atlantis by Edgar Casey, and that was edited by John Van Ocken and he's I believe a director of the Association for Research and Enlightenment. I don't know if he's the director. He is one of the directors. Yeah, he's actually got a speaking engagement at the Association for Research Enlightenment
0: on April 25th, talking about Casey and the prophecy. So if you're in the area of Virginia Beach, that sounds like kind of a cool event. We were talking about it. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to make it, but
1: April 25th of 2020, John Van Auken will be there discussing these very topics. Interesting. And a lot of prophecy as well, which always fascinates me. Well, John Van Auken, he has kind of an explanation here, which we should relay about just what you're going to hear and the nature of it. And I wonder, if Scott, if you could read from our notes here about what John Van Auken's thoughts were on the nature of the readings and how these kind of come about. Casey spoke with a Southern Kentuckian accent when he was awake,
0: which you probably heard in that clip that we played for you last week in the last part of the show. But in his sleep state, that accent also vocalized speech like one might find in the King James Version of the Bible with these and thou's. Yeah, not not all the time, but he stuck them in there occasionally, yeah. Sometimes, yes. Because I could hear the accent in that reading before, yes. you know, being from North Carolina. I was like, oh, this is familiar territory. Yeah. But then there's also, as uh, Van Ocken points out, the these and thou's. He also used unusual syntax in his sleep state. He put phrases, clauses, and sentences together that are hard to read. You have to pay careful attention to the words in order to derive meaning, and I'll tell you flat out that I failed frequently on some of the readings. <laughs> I also have to readmit that when I started the series out talking about how he didn't say the word entity, I've since read it probably 10,000 times, and okay. I don't know what yeah. compelled me to say he didn't say the word entity. I think it was because in my mind, I was perceiving him or wanting to perceive him as being on a different track than somebody using that word. I think of it as a, almost a more current word when it comes to paranormal and unusual stuff, and I, it felt unusual for me for him to be referring to it, but whenever he referred to a person in for a reading, those people were called entities yeah. by whatever these voices were that were channeling through him.
1: Well, speaking of channeling, didn't he, I don't know if he coined that term, but he was one of the first to use it in regards we to... We read that he yeah, coined it. I thought. We did not uh, dig deep on that, so it could be
0: very well attributed to somebody else, but... As far as I could tell, I know I saw at least two sources
1: that indicated he was the first person to uh, use that word, channeling. It introduced a lot of ideas into the uh, later 20th century here. And didn't Gladys Davis... I mean, imagine trying to transcribe that as a stenographer.
0: Yeah, she will... And that's something we pointed out in part two, I think, was just that she was the only one that could keep up and make it readable at all. Yeah. And that's why she was with him. I think it was 22 years or something, so... And she's clearly revered by the ARE to this day because without her, they wouldn't have records that they could refer to that were something to follow. It would be lost forever because, you know, back then, of course, there was access to tape and... Well, what
1: wire recordings, I think, this is probably pre-audio tape even, or magnetic tape at least. I think they had to use different means. Yeah, there was an accessibility issue. So Gladys really
0: was the secret to getting all of that stuff down. And obviously she was good at it, or
1: or she wouldn't have been in that position for so long. Well, it got me to thinking, maybe the language of whatever entity or entities was speaking through Casey at the time, why is it so stilted and a bit awkward? Well, maybe English wasn't their first language in a way. Because a lot of it sounds to me like legalese, mentioning every sentence, mentioning all the uh, different permutations of what could be happening, and uh, the way that legalese does to CYA to m- cover all the ends on that. So, Grammarly would have a lot of problems with the readings, which we occasionally use uh, for some of our writing. And uh, you just thought, like, no, that sounded great. What's wrong with it? Like, well, you're a robot. Don't you tell me, you know, how to spell and <laughs> use grammar. But we use it every day, multiple times a day.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It saves us from embarrassing ourselves
1: on social media as well. True dat, yes. And
0: believe it or not, they're not a sponsor. I'm just throwing that out there. That's an actual
1: life thing that we, grammarly protects us. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds (laughs) you how much you've forgotten about grade school grammar. Uh, Well, I want to explain once again where Casey said his information was coming from because it's important in this context to keep in mind, because again, this is not just uh, rub some bismuth and uh, Russian white oil on your thigh for a condition or whatever. It's not a remedy. This is really mind-boggling stuff. And I believe Al Lammers, as we said in part two, tripped onto this stuff, especially with reincarnation, and he was into it, but Casey was not. And he had to do a lot of convincing of Edgar Casey to keep going with this, that this information was valuable for at least the study of metaphysics and spiritual matters, which he eventually agreed. Well, this information, where it was coming from, and this is what he said when still in his sleep-like state, and I want to mention this again because I may have not have mentioned that there are two sources really of info that he answered to. His answer was that it came from two places. One was the mind of the reading subject mostly the deep recesses of the inquirer's subconscious mind. And secondly, that universal consciousness we mentioned previously, the infinite collective consciousness of the universe, the mind of all things in the universe, you could say. So there's two points here, is that it has to do also with the mind of the person that is getting the reading but also the overall collective consciousness that we all are a part of.
0: Well, yeah, and just an aside, this is something that, again, this was something that we uncovered or I did personally more when we covered his life directly in parts one and two. But one of the things that I got from the books that we read prior Was that there is a system that comes down, it's like an ice cream cone almost, and the bottom of the cone is the person, it's their own consciousness, and then the next step up is their subconsciousness, and then there's this global subconsciousness, and then there's an even higher level than that, and it's almost like there's a thread that passes through all of it, and the layers can't necessarily communicate directly with each other, yet they are all connected. And so when he's doing these readings, and again, (laughs) if you believe any Mm -hmm. of this at all, Mm -hmm. I'm really going down the rabbit hole here, but I like what you're explaining here because it's interesting to me. You're getting this information from the person who's there in the room in this case, but you're also stepping through those doorways into the larger consciousness that we don't necessarily have access to as waking people. That's the theory that I, as I understand it anyway.
1: Yeah, it all ties in also with these past lives that were in Atlantis, making a direct connection to the actions and fortunes of people now in Casey's time in the 20th century and now into the 21st century and will continue on, at least. That is the case of the entities of what they're saying here. Well, to go on about the universal consciousness, editor John Van Auken writes... Quote, he explained that every action and thought of every individual makes an impression upon the universal consciousness, an impression that can be psychically read. He correlated this with the Hindu concept of an Akashic record, which is an ethereal fourth dimensional film upon which actions and thoughts are recorded and can be read at any time. End quote. That part we hopefully got right. We did talk about that quite a bit. Yes. Just to point out, it is firmly in the realm of pseudoscience. Yes, of course, it's none of it. <laughs> none of this is provable. <laughs> and then I realized like, wow, well, you know what? Most of the stuff we talk about is not provable. Yes. Sometimes it's disprovable. True. Small fractions, uh, you get around the periphery here, that can be provable. and But those may not directly connect to the phenomenon that we're discussing here. But in regards to the medical readings, which in turn led to readings on metaphysical subjects and history's mysteries like Atlantis, Van Ocken also goes on to say this about Casey's connection to this universal consciousness Quote, He explained that the subconscious mind of everyone contains all of the data on the condition of the physical body it inhabits, and Casey simply connected with the patient's deeper mind. He could also give the cause of any condition, even if it was from early childhood or from many lifetimes ago, in a previous incarnation of the soul. This was knowable because the soul remembers all of its experiences. He explained that deeper portions of the subconscious mind are the mind of the soul, and portions of the subconscious and the soul inhabit the body with the personality. And this was how some people's readings mentioned their activities in Atlantis many lifetimes ago. So a little bit of insight into maybe how that works there. Uh, but another interesting note is that Casey sometimes didn't have the information he was asked of him, and he would reply in trance, we do not have that here, or probably, we do not have that here. That's <laughs> I'm not doing a Southern accent, because I know you hate it, yes. but I'm just saying is that it's just interesting that like you get a error 404. Yeah. <laughs> like page not found. We don't have that. Please come back tomorrow. <laughs> we, right. <laughs> So what you can make of that is that uh, maybe he didn't want to answer right then. If you were a real skeptic, you said, well, he couldn't make up a story right then, or he forgot what he was going to do, or his mental crib notes, whatever his trick was. But it seems once a question was asked about a topic or wanting a specific answer, his subconscious mind narrowly focused on accessing that information, and it wasn't available to hop around to different topics willy-nilly at will. But on a few occasions, he was able to access information about a topic different from what he was first asked. So it didn't always work, but it's like the jukebox, not picking up that record there.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting when you think about it, because when the—I like the metaphor that you just made, because when the jukebox is playing a record, there is no way to listen to any of the other records in the jukebox.
1: Yeah, you're going to hear this story. Yeah, the
0: player is focused on, you know, there's one needle, there's one apparatus that's going to play that music. But the other thing that this does is, if you believe any of this at all and what Casey is doing— is it's a little bit of a peek behind the curtain when you start to look at the mechanics of how it works. How does this information come through? Mm -hmm. Because if you're trying to conjecture, how does it work in there? It's like the waiting room in Beetlejuice, right? When they they go back there and you know, you got to wait and it turns out you're waiting for years and years. There's a big question about what's it like on the other side of this? How is this information coming through? And another thing it reminds me of, and Everything is connected is, and I keep going back to this, was when we recently had Connor J. Randall on and talking about the Estes method Mm -hmm. and all those connections to Hellier and all that stuff and the Estes method and the nature of that process and remote viewing. And it seems like there's a bit of a thread to the shows that we've been covering the past several months. Right. And that was not a conscious decision on our part. Yeah. Maybe it's that next level up of consciousness that's saying, hey, you guys should keep going down this road. Because there is a connection between a lot of the topics that we've been covering. And we didn't choose that. We just pick what we're interested in and what we want to do next. So,
1: Yeah. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I tell all the, owl, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox.
0: Life can hurt, but life is sweet.
1: Little Way, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now
0: streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is Jennifer in St. Louis. And when I'm not embroidering cryptids onto kitchen towels, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends.
1: Now let's get back to the show. Well, certainly, again, it opens the door to a lot of other uh, shows and series and topics, reincarnation being one. That's a big one. There's actually somebody specific I'd like to talk to about that, but that's a ways down the road. That's another one that we're going to put together after uh, not just information, but uh, hopefully to talk to people who have a claim on that. Well, in this case here, talking about Atlantis, the way the narrative of Edgar Casey's readings came together was that after several readings for individuals that Casey said were reincarnated Atlanteans or Atlanteans in past lives, the staff that was working with Casey wanted to get a series of readings that were just directly solely getting answers about Atlantis. And these readings became known as the 364 series, 364 being the topic number. And Scott and I discussed this a little earlier, understanding what that number means. Off the air, yeah. Yeah, as we said before in part two, maybe in part one, when Edgar Casey did a reading for a person, an individual, they were given a number just to keep their identity safe. And in the records, you wouldn't go back, you know, they wouldn't be hassled by people later on, especially for medical stuff. Certainly you want to be private. And so they were given a number and then a dash, and then the number of the reading for that person. So say it was person 710-4, that was the fourth reading given to that person who's who goes by the 700 number there. So... 364 was the number given to this topic and this, what turned into be a lecture series. When they did a reading where there wasn't a person
0: to focus on, and that's what that became. Right. But, like, does that mean that 363 was a person and 365 was a person, and that's just where they were when they went to 364? Or is there also a 364 person that sometimes gets confused with the 364 series? I used to be a vault manager, which is kind of like a librarian. Well, me too, actually. For, you know, film and tape and all that stuff. That's how both of us started out, I guess, in Hollywood or what. So I I can't help but try to catalog things.
1: Yeah. I don't know if there's a subcategory. I see what you're saying about there's people and then there are subjects. Yeah. yeah, That have, uh, maybe they start at one. Yeah. Like I said, there was 10,000 different topics. So I don't know how you track all that, but they have managed to do it. Well, in the readings themselves, there was a way, talk about categorization, that Gladys Davis the stenographer would use. And so at the beginning of the page at the top she would describe and write down what was going on, who was there, the time of day. So it would say something like for this one the text of reading 364-1. That's the first one in this series about Atlantis. This psychic reading is being given by Edgar Casey at his office in Virginia Beach. It would list the date, February 3rd, 1932, and who requested it. In this case it was a Norfolk study group number 1. For the ARE, and it tells who was present. It was Edgar Casey, his wife, Gertrude, who is now leading most of the sessions, asking the questions, Gladys Davis, the stenographer, uh, Mildred Davis, Hugh Lynn, and LB Casey, and Gray Salter. So that was everybody that was in there. And it's kind of like anytime you do a paranormal investigation, you list everybody who's there. So if anybody, if you hear anything strange or something comes out, you want to make sure you can ask people later. And coordinate to just so there's witnesses as well. So they're pretty well documented, at least for back in those days. So we just wanted to read a couple of short excerpts from
0: that first reading, the very first Atlantis reading. Here's one, uh, and then Forrest, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, or we can discuss what this means.
1: Oh, I got comments on the entire first uh, opening salvo of this Atlantis reading, which is taken down in entirety. It's kind of an opening statement by, you could say, the entities speaking through Casey about, okay, if you want to talk about this, this is what's going to happen. Right. This is the setup. So once they get past the formalities of getting it
0: started, here is a couple of lines that stood out to us. Atlantis as a continent is a legendary tale. Whether or not that which has been received through psychic sources has for its basis those few lines given by Plato, or the references made in Holy Writ that the earth was divided, depends upon the trend of individual minds. So again, there's a good example of sentences that aren't super easy to follow, but do seem to have a message in them. Yeah. I mean, what's your take on that, Forrest?
1: Well, what's interesting is if you look at it again, you have to think about it in different scenarios. If you believe the Casey sons and Edgar Casey himself, I presume, that he knew nothing about Plato, didn't read any of it, didn't know that Plato had talked about Atlantis at all, then it had to come from a psychic source, this mention of it. If you believe that, yeah, he was asleep and he wasn't faking it and he didn't have some mnemonic device where he could recall all this stuff and chat about it for hours and hours over 21 years and not contradict himself, then there was some trick to it. So if you believe, though, that, okay, he's not faking it, but it's not from his subconscious or a psychic thing where he's pulling information about known works, of course, then this other ethereal entity is also talking about Plato. And something I'll talk about when we get done here is the phrase here, depends on the trend of individual minds. Well, what does the reading say about whether this stuff is true or not?
0: Well, a few lines down, it says, as to whether this information is true or not depends upon the credence individuals give to this class of information.
1: Okay. Also very interesting.
0: Yes. And cryptic, while at the same time being direct, because it seems to me like it's saying, well, if you believe this, it's true. And if you don't, then it's not. It seems a little bit like that. Like, it's up to you. And the other part of it seems like, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just telling you what is and you have to find your own truth. It's a little Yoda-esque, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right up your your baby
0: Yoda alley. Well, baby Yoda can't talk yet, but yeah.
1: Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I thought that's why you highlighted this next passage in green highlighter here.
0: Uh, No, I highlighted that because if we read that, it'll put us over our 500-word limit for quoting readings, which we get to do without permission, according to the
1: ARE. Okay, well then I'll... (laughs) So you can paraphrase that one, yeah. Yeah, I'll, (laughs) I'll just do that then. Well, here are my thoughts about it. What's funny is that this one ends kind of saying uh we're done for today yes so we're done here for right now that's all i need to say right now opening here we're going to pick this up later that's how the reading ends not in those exact words again because i don't want to go over but it asks some really interesting and important questions i believe before starting off and this what this entity knows is going to be a long narrative on the history of atlantis because it's an old beam i'm sure you have questions right <laughs> or David Pumpkins, questions? Yes, many, several. I have several questions about Atlantis. (laughs) I need you to answer here. Well, um, starting off here, he says curiously that this discourse on Atlantis would be better as two different lectures. That's interesting, because if you look at that case, then the discourse on Atlantis is just about the history, and I take it to mean, and a lot of people will too, you're going to have to use your own judgment on what this means should you dive into it further and want to research it. The second part of that, though, is not just the history and what went on, but how those lessons are meaningful for us today. So I think it ties in with this other interesting point about, does this have any meaning? Why are you making me do this? I have to come from a long ways away through the ethers to explain this to you. But here's the point of it. It's what you stated. A lot of this depends on the trends of the minds of the people that are hearing this and whose lives were affected. Because another thing that's said in another reading is something that we say a lot, which is the entity is saying, I can't really prove to you that Atlantis existed, or if these stories are true, or what I'm going to tell you is true, because... Believing is personal, and it's an experience, and I might point out all this stuff to you, and if you're not of a mind to believe it, it doesn't matter. If you are of a mind to believe it, then it may have some benefit to you in how you live your life and go on from here, not just what you did in a past life 50,000 years ago. So the entity is saying, really, you can try and make a point of getting people to believe in Atlantis and the stories, but they're not going to believe if they're not ready for it or will accept it. And there's no point to it because it's something you just have to experience, this truth for yourself. So whether or not we end up believing the story of Atlantis to be truth or fiction may depend on how valuable we find this information to humanity today. How can we relate to it as useful to our own lives? Or as Casey goes on to ask, what would this information mean to the development of my soul now, where it's relevant and actually useful? And now that this is back to my thought here, if we individually find the Atlantis information useful in our lives today as a means to achieving a closer relationship and understanding to what Casey called the creative forces, or perhaps the higher spiritual realm of goodness, maybe we might better accept it as truth. The truth might be up to each of us to accept and use, or, our individual thoughts about it may contribute to the greater truth on Atlantis. Kind of like thoughts or things, perhaps. Well, at the end of the first reading specifically about Atlantis, Casey posed this question to all of us. Since the intelligence that is coming through Casey is stating that reincarnation is a fact, and remember, Casey did not accept it himself at first, then souls who were active during the time of Atlantis are inhabiting people today. And if that's the case, and they were so advanced and willful that they could alter their environment and bring destruction upon themselves, could these souls active today influence our current affairs and the lives of modern day people? And he ends this first opening lecture with wondering aloud, if these souls are being reincarnated into people today, then what were their surroundings like and their circumstances in Atlantis? And what would the elements of their world that they bring mean in our world today? So essentially, how could Atlantis affect us now? There was a book we meant to mention earlier, which I
0: can't remember now. I don't think we did because the first half of the show was recorded a different day. But we meant to bring up Atlantis, the Antediluvian World by Ignatius Donnelly. This book, according to Edgar Evans Casey at the time that Edgar Casey's On Atlantis was published, again, reminding you that that was written by his younger son, Edgar Evans Casey, and edited by Hugh Lynn Casey. In this book, they talk about how Atlantis, the antediluvian world, was sort of the Bible for a lot of the beliefs and theories about Atlantis. And again, that was written by Ignatius Donnelly, who is, I guess, somewhat of a standout in the world of writing about these types of things, because he is also a famous Bacon wrote Shakespeare guy, which we've talked about in the past. And I always think of our Tess, who is our right-hand woman and head of research and co-producer of this show and the Midnight Library. She's a Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare person, which a lot of people are. But we have some perspective on this because last year, I think we mentioned this once on the show before, Forrest, you had tracked this down and it was exciting and fun to go to. We went to a lecture by Gustavo Turner at the Philosophical Research Society in Los Feliz, which is an interesting place that is similar to the Association for Research and Enlightenment, but it centers around the collections and studies of a gentleman named Manley P. Hall, who collected all these books on the esoteric, and just has this amazing library. And Gustavo Turner Turner came and did a lecture there called Secrets and Cryptograms, Shakespeare, Bacon, and the Great Literary Mystery. And that was on April 25th of 2019, which Forrest and I Both attended. I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Gustavo Turner. I'm reading his bio from that actual event, even though it was a year ago. He has a Harvard PhD in English literature and specialized in early modern literature in Shakespeare. And the setup for this particular lecture was that he had recently cataloged Hall's Baconiana collection that's a word that I learned at this particular lecture. <laughs> I think you made
1: it, it up. But, all <laughs> it's right. in
0: here For this event, Dr. Turner has selected several rare volumes from the 16th to the 20th century, many of which have not been outside of Manly P. Hall's vault in years, and he will be showing them for one evening only at the PRS library. He will talk about and show each rare book weaving the story of how the authorship of Shakespeare's immortal works became a source of doubt and mystery during the 19th century, and then how persistent Often obsessive detective work led to a number of hotly debated theories. Manly P. Hall's unique occult interpretation of the Baconian riddle will also be explored through examples from the PRS library and archives. Dr. Turner is just so knowledgeable, and he had brought out all kinds of books. So there's lots of these just huge tables, you know, twice the size of ping pong tables. There's like five or six of them. And they were all covered with these books relating to Bacon and Shakespeare. And that topic, which he talked about at great length that night, and it was super fascinating. But one of the things that he talked about, one of the authors that he talked about famously, was Ignatius Donnelly, because Donnelly is known in that realm. Well, it turns out Donnelly also wrote an over 500 page book on Atlantis. And Donnelly, again, if you ask Wikipedia, is firmly listed as being involved with uh, pseudoscience and pseudo history. And his Wikipedia entry covers some things about him, but then goes out of its way near the end to completely discredit all the work he did by quoting, uh, for example, (laughs) Gordon Stein, who has noted, quote, most of what Donnelly said was highly questionable or downright wrong, end quote. So that's the cultural perspective, at least at Wikipedia, and maybe rightfully so about Donnelly, but... We found it really interesting, and Dr. Turner didn't really take a position on the Shakespeare Bacon thing, but he was very subjective about it and maybe the quixotic relationship between people trying to figure out what happened with Shakespeare and Bacon and whether there's any relationship there at all. It was really amazing. There's no way to sum up everything we heard in that lecture, but we just wanted you to understand who Donnelly was as we talk about the book a little bit, Atlantis,
1: The Antediluvian World. Well, you're not supposed to stray from the main narrative. Yes. You get slapped on the hand for that. However, Donnelly was also a politician, which we'll leave that to the audience to- uh, Minnesota, I believe. Decide if if that gives you any kind of credence at all, like if that gives you any gravitas. But he was a member of the Minnesota House of Representatives and also the Minnesota Senate- and second lieutenant governor of Minnesota, and this would be in the 1860s to 1870s. There's something about these Minnesota governors. They like the French stuff. Look at Jesse Ventura. That's right. Remember
0: Jesse Ventura was doing all that when he was governor there from 1999 to 2003, and he was talking about UFOs and Area 51 and all that kind of stuff.
1: He went to go see the Heart Project and banged on the doors. and they Yeah. Were like, yeah, we're, we're not letting you in. Well, maybe it's the cold weather. I don't know. There's <laughs> <laughs> something about it makes you uh, turn inward to your studies. And that's what uh, Donnelly did. He was a very prolific writer, maybe not so many volumes, but these tomes are huge we're talking about 700, 900 pages. So I yeah. think the Bacon book is close to 1,000 pages. Yeah, so. who has
0: the time to do all the, not only the research, but the writing? It's just like,
1: I don't understand. We can barely keep this show going. I... <laughs> People had more time. There's less distractions back then. Yeah, but so. getting back to the point of Atlantis, his research, pseudoscience, history or not, or pseudo ephedrine, I don't know. He was finding some interesting connections between the development of ancient cultures in far-flung places like Egypt and South American culture, Mesoamerican culture, North American culture, and places in Europe. And how was this possible? Was it all separately developed? Was it all independently sparked these similarities in these various cultures, or was there something to it? Yeah, and some of those
0: similarities, like you said, that he found some between ancient Egyptian culture and Central and South American cultures like the 365-day calendar, the practice of embalming, building pyramids, great flood legends, etc. And Donnelly argued that those cultures, ancient Egyptian and American Indian, originated in Atlantis and spread east and west when Atlantis was destroyed. He also argues that the Basques of the Spanish Pyrenees are different from their neighbors in appearance and language. And here's a quote from the Lincoln Library regarding that. Quote, the Basque tongue is the only non Aryan tongue of Western Europe. So they're using this common ground to make connections, and it may be a little bit of a leap as history shows. Also, we did want to mention that the word Aryan is a bit of a red flag, and I wanted to read a little bit about the definition of Aryan from the Free Dictionary, just to make it clear. When most English speakers hear the word Aryan, they probably think of it as referring primarily to northern Europeans in the context of the racist theories of European physical and mental superiority espoused by the Nazis. Originally, however, the word referred to the early Indo-Iranians, the Indo-European peoples who inhabited parts of what are now Iran, Afghanistan, and India. Their tribal designation was a word reconstructed as Arya, A-R-Y-A, or Arya. The first of these is the form found in Iranian as ultimately in the name of Iran itself, from Middle Persian Iran, E-R-A-N, land of the Iranians. So there's a lot more to that. We have a link to that here, but we just wanted to make it clear that just because we included it in this show does not mean we're putting some racist theory into the story about Atlantis because that's not what we're doing
1: right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's kind of a well-known fact here, factoid. Is that the Basque language, yeah, it's different from any surrounding languages. It's kind of its own thing and has no known root. So I was curious about this because I have always been super
0: fascinated with the Basques and their differences from their surrounding peoples. And I have an update Mm -hmm. on this that we can do
1: now or we can do in
0: a minute if you'd like to keep going. I didn't want to...
1: Well, I was just going to say, depending on what your update is here with the Basque language and their culture being different... There are also a few other things, regardless of what you believe about Donnelly's conclusions, because that's a separate thing, which I believe a lot of scientists and historians would have a problem with. But the things Donnelly brought up, the connections he made, if they are indeed at least valid on the surface, things like the Canary Islanders being different from mainland Africans, and the Canary Islanders practiced mummification. There are similar names between cities in Asia Minor and Central America, which is pretty startling when you look at them. I just want to know what's up with all that. I believe these connections should be looked into, not thrown out completely just because you don't believe in Donnelly's credentials as a historian.
0: Well, again, I've long had a fascination with the difference in dialect in the Basque region and the other differences in terms of the Basque peoples to the people surrounding them. And it was something that I used to think about a lot back when we were starting the show. And I'm surprised I've not come back around to look at it. So as we were doing this and looking it up and, and reading about the numerous suggestions that there was a connection between the Basques and Atlantis, I wanted to see what the latest science on it was in the interest of staying open-minded about it for all sides of the spectrum. And I found an article on the BBC. This is from September 7th of 2015. There is no byline. But this was published on their website. And the headline is, Ancient DNA Cracks the Puzzle of Basque Origins. We have a link to this in our show notes. And it talks about a DNA study done on the region that determines the following. I'm just going to read this excerpt from the article. Comparisons with other ancient European farmers show that agriculture was brought to Iberia by the same migrant groups that introduced it to central and northern Europe. These pioneers expanded from a homeland in the Near East, sweeping across Europe about 7,000 years ago to usher in the period known as the Neolithic. Once the farmers settled down, they mixed with local hunter-gatherers, the descendants of people who lived in Europe during the last Ice Age. Indeed, the El Portolan individuals had more hunter-gatherer ancestry than pioneer farmers from Germany, Hungary, and Spain, who lived several thousand years earlier. The new study also goes some way to explaining some of the differences between the Basques and their neighbors in France and Spain. After the initial farmer-hunter mixture was set, the ancestors of the Basques became isolated from surrounding groups, perhaps due to a combination of geography and culture. And this is a quote from a Professor Jacobson who's cited in the article. It's hard to speculate, but we've been working with Basque histories and it's clear from the historical record that this area was very difficult to conquer. The article goes on to say, this means the Basque area was largely unaffected by subsequent migrations that shaped genetic patterns elsewhere in Europe. So it really is just suggesting that These people were isolated, either fortuitously or by design, for such a long time that that led to the differences both in their DNA and in their dialect. So that is the science on that as of right now, and I feel like we should point it out to be the full picture, as we like to be. But what about the language? Why does it have no known parent? The language was developed in isolation. So like I said, we have a link to the study that it talks about. But it's similar to those languages that you talk about, like the one with all the clicking and the whatever. It's because it's developed in complete isolation that it can't be related to any of the romance languages or anything else. Well, coming back around to Donnelly's viewpoint, one of the things that Edgar Evans Casey says in Edgar Casey on Atlantis is that the, the most accepted theory of all the ones that Donnelly put forward was the sunken island continent theory. And he talks about how that was actually published in an article in 1948 in Science Digest. That's on page 19 of the book. So let's talk a little bit more about the specifics, though, about when and where it might
1: have existed. So what we're about to hear are the ideas coming through Casey's mediumship about Atlantis. And of course, none of this conjecture here, as it would be seen by mainstream science and geologists, can be verifiable. However, there is some independent research that may have found some geological clues that might point to this being accurate, or at least in the ballpark, according to what Casey's readings were. So you're just going to have to take this all with a grain of salt and just put your storytelling cap on, rather than your geologist cap on. Yeah. <laughs> and just hear what the voices from beyond have to say about the overall history of Atlantis, because the date range is millions of years ago to the present. So it's far beyond even what we've discovered. But like I said, there's been independent discoveries that have found some clues that supporters of Casey's readings would say point to this being a likelihood of his theories being possible, at least. And just so I understand something here,
0: because this was a little confusing to me, we talked about it a little off the air yesterday, but in terms of the millions of years ago to the present, that's not suggesting that Atlantis existed for millions of years, starting millions of years ago. It's more suggesting that there was a long, slow, evolution that evolved into Atlantis, and that it's hard to trace exactly when it started, but it started millions of years ago, and then the end result was Atlantis, right? Well, you have
1: to separate the question here between two different things. Are you talking about the landmass, or are you talking about the civilization of Atlantis? Because as we'll see here, Edgar Cayce's readings would suggest that there were entities present, I believe, millions of years ago, but in a different form than what you would think of as flesh and blood. We're going to explain that in a little bit here. But Edgar Evans Casey's interpretation of the readings would suggest that the history of it with, let's say, thought entities to its final destruction would span millions of years. There were indications from the readings that there were three major disruptions, and that includes major land changes and people fleeing a lot of death. According to the readings, those would have occurred around 50,000 BCE, 28,000 BCE, which was another land upheaval that actually split the continent into islands, one of them being called Poseidia. So that's often confusing if you look at the readings Is he talking about another name for Atlantis. In the readings, it would say Poseidia is a major island that has now formed out of the once together continent of Atlantis. And the last major upheaval took place around 10,000 BCE, and that is possibly the one that Plato was describing. That's been suggested by the readings and the interpretation by Edgar Evans Casey. Each period of destruction lasted months or years rather than days, as I believe Plato would have described, or some people think. According to the readings, these upheavals took a fair amount of time to complete. The inhabitants in each case— had enough warning that many of them were able to escape to Europe, Africa, and the Americas. So according to the readings then, North and South America and portions of Europe had an influx of fleeing Atlanteans over this long history during these three upheavals. So according to the readings, that explains the scattering of the different peoples, all originally from Atlantis, and taking with them their technology and knowledge. And once they arrived in these new places, there were people there, indigenous peoples, but they influenced them with their technology that they brought. So according to the readings, that explains why there was advanced development of these different civilizations. Like you look at Mesoamerica, and they had pyramids, and so did ancient Egypt. And they had really advanced knowledge of cosmology and astronomy and mathematics. And how do they do that? Do they all do it independently? So it's a good argument for advancement in all these different places at the same time, because they were fleeing Atlanteans but from the readings where was atlantis so edgar evans casey summarized that the readings would claim that atlantis used to lie somewhere between the gulf of mexico and the mediterranean and that there was according to the readings again there was evidence to be found in the pyrenees morocco british honduras yucatan and north america and a little bit of south america and it was a very large continent at the time before it broke up and there may be protruding portions still existing. Something like the British West Indies, the Bahamas are portions that may be seen in the present, if you are willing to believe that that was part of the geological history of this continent. Geological survey would find evidence in Bimini and the Gulf Stream, again, according to the readings.
0: Yeah, there's one particular reading, reading 364-3, and again, that's how we know it's a reading about Atlantis because it's uh, from the 364 series where he talks specifically about the location. And there's a lot of mention, again, of the Pyrenees, Morocco. Bimini comes up a lot, and so does the Yucatan, which is fascinating because there's a consistency to those areas, which there's a lot of range there. There's a lot of space there, but also in theory, it was a fairly large continent. So it's hard to say. I feel like it doesn't really nail it down a lot because the Atlantic Ocean and the areas described are pretty huge. But I don't know. What do you think about that, Forrest?
1: In the theory of plate tectonics and uniformitarianism? Yes. <laughs> that. Boy, I didn't even look that up.
0: Yeah, that's gradual change as opposed to sudden catastrophic change. Yes.
1: Right. Well, there's two ways to look at it, is that that's not really possible for the subsuming of such a massive piece of land in a relatively short period of time in geological standards that it would be millions of years, maybe maybe a billion years it would take for that to happen. Now, there are theories about Pangaea or Pangaea. I, my whole life, I've thought it was Pangaea. That at one time, the landmass was all joined because what we see now on a map is the continents look like puzzle pieces. So that was derived from plate tectonics and things moving over millions of years. So... Could it have subsided? Well, if you look at the readings themselves, it wasn't overnight either. And we're talking in a period of millions of years. So, But who knows? But like I said, explorers have found what they think is evidence of some geographical features that appear to have been above water at some time and are now below water. And in that region, it's thought by some that the sea level may have risen as much as 300 feet. So I think there's enough evidence that it remains a valid debate between at least mainstream geologists to this day. So now let's talk about that other point you brought up, the difference between the landmass, the continent, the the dirt and the rocks, and the actual population of Atlantis itself. Unfortunately, Casey wasn't pressed directly about lining up dates and not many were given exactly, but there are, as I said earlier, three main time periods where there was activity between massive land changes. So the first one would be the history of Atlantis before 50,000 BC, extending maybe millions of years ago. Again, there was no starting date or time period or epoch of when things started to happen, but this is also where it gets kind of controversial, because now we are in the realm of spirits before we actually get into the realm of flesh and blood. And one controversial point that the readings bring up Humans, as we know them, first started essentially as thought projections by, I guess you'd call them spiritual entities, angelic beings, maybe in some cases, but that the population, as we know it, as human beings, started off as five different projections of these thought spirit beings into
0: flesh and blood. Okay, I have a question about this. First of all, and I read the same book you did, and there were some things that were difficult to follow for me. I'm just trying to determine how much of, for instance, what you're talking about right now is a direct, easy-to-assimilate interpretation of what Edgar Casey said himself, and how much of it is based on his son Edgar Evans Casey's interpretations, uh-huh. especially with regard to this, because I did see in the readings about the thought projections— my question is, and I probably shouldn't be asking, you, it's funny, it's the blind leading the blind here. <laughs> Neither one of us has studied anything from the ARE, but we've read a few books and now we're experts. Um, I did stay at a Holiday Inn last night. But yeah, no, but my question is, the thought projections, so are you saying that they materialized, they manifested physical beings that they took over, or that they went down and inhabited things that were already there?
1: That's my biggest question about this part of the philosophy. Well, as I said at the beginning, and I'll I'll say it again, and I will probably at the end as well in my conclusions, is that the readings themselves will tell you that you're going to have to maybe interpret this for yourself. Or what it means to you and what you choose to believe about it. I find that very unsatisfying. I (laughs) want to know.
0: None of this is satisfying. I want to know what the person sharing the information wanted it to mean. Right. Or meant meant by it. I don't want it to be like, well, it's up to you. I don't, that bugs me.
1: But, okay, fine. (laughs) I think maybe you might have more of a problem with it if all this fantastical stuff came from a voice that said, this is the truth, sonny boy, better swallow it whole. And if it sticks going down, I can't help you. Because... It's so out there. And I think, interestingly enough, the tone of the reading seemed to accept that as well, that a lot of people aren't going to believe this. But here it is. And maybe that's not the major message. But since you asked, since you're asking Casey and we're talking through him, here is what this quote-unquote we know about the history of Atlantis. But as the entity said, there are really two lectures about this. One, I believe, is the history part of it and what happened and The second part is really what matters about that history and what it should mean to you as individuals in this time and place and what it meant to you in your past lifetimes and how that kind of follows through. So I would bet that if it said, this is how it laid down and uh, you better buy this, that you would reject that. And I know it's unsatisfying, but you got to take from this what you will. And I believe the point here is to spark thinking about it, thinking outside your constraints of what you've been taught as a child And what you have solidified into thinking as an adult, and step outside that for a bit and consider the spiritual realm. Now you're making me say my conclusions, but. That's fine. I'm not trying to get you that far
0: down the road, but I guess that to an extent, what you're saying right now, anyway, is that you think the idea might be to provoke a philosophical
1: conversation. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And also your solidified ideas and the ideas that have been fed to you take a step back and consider something else. And here's another possible truth, but it is controversial. We can look now at DNA studies as the genome project has come to a satisfying point where we can take bone fragments and trace the DNA and the patterns and migrations of people over a million years into modern humans from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, sapiens meaning wise or thinking, What many of the readings are saying is that the creative forces, that's the word used, rarely do I find G with a capital G, meaning God or what you would think of it, but say the positive spiritual creative force of the universe, again, you can take that to mean God, first started creating what we think of as spirits, which the readings say are thought projections. So it's an entity that is an intelligence, and that's why I keep using that term for the voices coming through Casey. And because they are also part of the creative force, they had some creative force themselves. They could manipulate animals or flesh and bone creatures on the earth, and what they wanted, essentially how this story starts off, is that they have certain powers as spirit beings, but they also enjoyed sampling the delights of being a physical creature, and there are five senses to that. Sight, touch, hearing, smell, taste— Those five senses, they delighted in because it was so foreign and refreshing to them that they started injecting themselves into different creatures and also being able to morph certain creatures into different beings. And as a side note here, I think I had somewhere in my notes before, is that Edgar Evans Casey posits, are these maybe what we think of as Greek gods or what the Greeks thought of as gods, these strange creatures? Are these similar to what cryptids may be today? weird hybrids created by some other outside force. That's getting way out there, of course. But essentially, how it starts is that there are these spiritual beings that have some creative powers themselves. They start to enjoy being physical creatures, and they did it so much that a lot of them lost sense of their true spiritual origins. And as they started to do this, they lost track of that link, and they became essentially trapped as physical creatures. But they didn't really start off as human. What the readings say in the book is that they are maybe not what you think of or picture as humans today, but humanoid, baby. They were something else. And so what we have in Atlantis is a projection, or what is called the five projections, the five races, and very simply and controversially, you could think of those as white, black, red, brown, and yellow, and they appeared on the Earth all at once in different areas, And I believe the readings would say, or Casey would say, that the red race developed in Atlantis. And as the land upheavals occurred, they moved to different areas. And that's why you have migrations or emigrations of people that we now think of as native North Americans, Mesoamericans, South Americans, actually first came from Atlantis and brought some technology with them. And then, of course, you get back to Ignatius Donnelly's argument that, well, how did they come up with pyramids? That was that just their own idea somewhere separately, and they thought that that was a good idea, and so did the Egyptians. Where did their knowledge of astronomy come from? So, this theory here ties in with a lot of other peoples that don't seem to directly take it from Casey's readings, because of course Donnelly was in the eighteen seventies, eighteen nineties. Casey's readings came about in the twenties and thirties and forties, mostly. And as I said, modern science would disagree with all this, because according to DNA studies, we all essentially came from the same ancestors in Africa, and that spread out from there, and that's the birthplace of civilization. So we're just getting that out of the way. You can read these things and take them how you will, but that's what the readings say, is that there were five different types of people. No one race is superior to another, but they all developed at different times, but somewhat in conjunction with each other, and that's because of this immigration after these massive land changes in Atlantis. So another crazy thing about these early, I guess you could call them proto-humans, these spirit beings projecting themselves into physical creatures that some may have been existing, as animals were then at that time period naturally on the Earth. There was a natural evolution of life that is also stated in the readings. It doesn't disagree with that. So in a sense, it's borrowing from evolution and creationism in a way. And some of these creatures were manipulated by these forces themselves for their own selfish pleasures. And that selfishness, that self-aggrandizement caused them to be trapped because they lost sense of their true selves, which are spiritual beings. And a lot of people nowadays in the New Age movement would say, that's the problem with humans now is that we're forgetting that we're, as we said in part one, spiritual beings having a physical experience rather than physical beings having a spiritual experience. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now let's get back to the show.
0: So what we're saying here is that in this particular story, these spiritual beings preceded the wise version of mankind's evolution on Earth. And then they came down and they started occupying things And they got, I guess, enamored with the idea of experiencing the five senses. And they were so, got so caught up in this. And also the manipulation of the experience that they were having that it's like they walked into the casino, got stuck at the slot machines and never came out.
1: And they've lost track of time. Yeah. And now they're just a one-armed bandit pulling machine. Right. But there is talk of automaton-like behavior, which I'm going to mention now. Okay. But to clarify the readings as I interpreted them, life was developing and evolving in several different manners on earth according to these readings. That some of these were thought projections into physical creatures that existed or were created, but there was also a natural evolution of humanoid beings on its own, and these thought creatures messed with that. That's another thing that got them into trouble, is that they were messing with God's original plan or, or the creatures that he had created to evolve naturally, and those might be called the daughters of men, So that gets into another point brought up by the readings is that some of these creatures who had power saw that the daughters of men, or maybe the daughters of some of these more humanoid creatures, they took a liking to them, they mated with them. Especially once they had access to the five senses, they were like, oh, that
0: looks nice. Let's hold hands and maybe more. As
1: as, as a spiritual being, you can appreciate something on a higher plane. And then once you're just a a grunting caveman-like beast you saw that the other daughters of men were attractive and you wanted to get with that. So you started messing with that. And what happened is that strange creatures were being produced from this, strange hybrids. And then you get into stories of giants roaming the earth, the Nephilim. And that ties into our whole series on giants and the Old Testament comments about the Nephilim being the offspring of spirit beings, angelic beings, and humans, the daughters of men, and creating these men of renown, the heroes of old, as it's described in the Old Testament. And that would be folks like Goliath and maybe Gilgamesh and all these legendary characters that they were somehow special and they did heroic things, but they ripped the place up as well. And so that's a connection between Casey's readings or whatever voice was coming through him and the Old Testament. But a description of some of these strange characters from the readings is that some of them were very small, like pygmies, to giants 10 or 12 feet tall. That's specifically mentioned in the book. So the readings would be a proponent of giants on Earth around that time. And that some of these beings, I'm not sure if all of them were, but at some state, they were hermaphroditic. They were both of male and female character. And that would separate later. And as time developed, as they got more and more trapped, as they evolved, there were some that were more useful as an ideal stature, meaning it may not be efficient to be two and a half feet tall. It may not be efficient to be 12 or 14 feet tall, but really what we have now, five feet to seven feet, that's an ideal stature. And the readings also say the most ideal stature was Adam, who appeared in that time as five in one. So the five projections into one, or the five ideal types, and Adam being created by God. As the ideal man. So that's what I say is, I see this as there's a lot of things going on here, not one direct line of development, several things going on. God creates Adam as, never mind what you other beings are doing, here is the perfect man, I'm going to start with him. And that leads to a point that I'm going to cover in my conclusions as well as the confusion about that. But the other thing that they were doing, these beings as they were developing, is that they were able to create Other creatures that were humanoid that they used for slave labor, essentially. And boy, if this does not uh, bring up Blade Runner and replicants or androids nowadays, I don't know what does because it's kind of the same thing is that human-like creatures with all the functionality that we have, the ideal stature, they were able to do the work and the bidding and the pleasurable things for these higher plane beings. And that got them into trouble, them dominating and using these people for not good reasons, And that would eventually create a rift between the controlling factions or the population of the civilization of Atlantis and lead to more upheavals and destruction.
0: Well, this is where we get into these two factions in Atlantis, which I'm infinitely fascinated with.
1: This would be, uh, for clarification, I think in the period around 50,000 BC and afterwards. That's right. the, The more
0: recent period for Atlantis. It's come to a pretty developed state at this point. I'm going to read this reading here. This is reading 877 26, which means that it was given to an individual and not from the Atlantis series readings. It's probably relating to someone who was theoretically present as an incarnation to witness part of this in a prior life. The sons of Belial were of one group, or those that sought more the gratifying, the satisfying, the use of material things for self without thought or consideration as to the sources of such, nor the hardships in the experiences of others. Or, in other words, as we would term it today, they were those without a standard of morality. The other group who followed the law of one had a standard. The sons of Belial had no standard save of self-self-aggrandizement. So, that sums up what's happening here between these two parties. And it struck a chord with me. I mean, well, one thing it makes you think about is materialism in general. And when I think about American culture, and we all have an iPhone, and are these being built by children at low wages in Shanghai? Yeah. I mean, that's really, this is a pretty good description of a lot of what's going on in the world today as it relates to capitalism anyway.
1: Well, that's the point of the readings, and I believe the voice of the readings would say, it may be helpful, you might find use in all this to make correlations to what we're going on today. The jumping off point for a lot of people is that, well, the reason that that's happening is that, yeah, a lot of people are being reincarnated from Atlantis into lives today— from the turn of the last century to the present day, and their past lives in Atlantis, their skills, their technology, their thinking, their proclivities are affecting and influencing how we live today. And that's what the readings, I believe, would say is important, is to look back on that. Even if you don't believe in reincarnation, look at how patterns are developing and what we value in a culture, and is that good or bad? That's the point of the readings. And two modern things, points of view, I would say, is for some, it might be easier to view these two factions, not so much as tribes. We talked about this off the air, how to think about these two groups, the sons of Belial, the bad guys, and the sons of the law of one, those who followed the light and did good and were thoughtful and considerate of those around them and below them. I thought of it a little bit in the terms of Dune. You have the house of Atreides and house Harkonnen. And they are kind of family dynasties, I guess, in a way, but they're not just limited to people of that lineage. They are groups of thought. The Harkonnen were out for self-aggrandizement, torture of others, control and power, and doing bad things. And the House Atreides, well, they're more regular normal people. (laughs) They had a like a fiefdom of sorts. So that's how I pictured these two factions developing, is that a rift, as the readings would say, a rift of belief came that the sons of Belial, were taking this technology and these new advancements and just using them for their own pleasures. And that was not good because they're hurting others, especially these beings that had no say, that they were automatons in a way, created for their own work and pleasures. And again, another modern connection is what we're seeing with genetic development here. And will we have one day replicants from Blade Runner or fabricants from Cloud Atlas, that movie where You have people working at fast food joints that are just clones and they don't know it and they're basically slave labor, but they are flesh and blood. Do they have souls? Should they be considered? So that's a connection theoretically to a distant future that may arrive for us, but what can we do in the meantime to prevent something dystopian like that?
0: Well, the other thing that comes up with the readings and with the life readings that were connected to prior lives in Atlantis was Casey essentially sharing information and insight about what the person did the last time around and what that means now that they're back. Why are they back, first of all? And what are they going to do with the skills they brought forth into the now, into this present life that they had? There's an example in there of one reading that was given to a child. The parents brought the child in. They were trying to figure out how to take advantage of the kid's interests. I don't believe there was anything that suggested that the kid was a problem child or any issues were coming up, but just that they wanted to assess the best way to encourage him, which is what I'm sure a lot of parents want to do. And it turned out that Casey felt that the kid obviously had, it was a trend towards science and engineering. And he warns the parents and the kid, this is a young child at the time of the reading, That this is a power that you have to be careful with. You can use it to do good, or you can use it towards evil or bad things. And the reading explained that the kid had been around the block before. He had lived in Germany, India, and Atlantis, inventing sometimes good things, sometimes things for warfare, like explosives. His reading explains that he must be directed towards the proper channels. Listen to this quote from the reading, and this particular reading is not cited in Edgar Evans Casey's book, So, and I had some difficulty finding it elsewhere online, so I can't give a citation for which reading it is. But here's the quote, which I think Forrest, you may find has some common ground with uh, some other expressions that we've heard. Quote, turned in the wrong channels, his abilities may become warnings to many that thought they gained the whole world and lose their own soul. What has been gained? End quote. So that's his warning about where this
1: kid might go with his talents and abilities. Yeah, that's echoing, and I had of course, look this up, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know Bible verses by heart. This is in the New Testament, Mark chapter 8, verse 36 here from the New International Version. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So that's one of the more famous sayings from the Bible.
0: Right. And so that's just baked into this reading, but it's the warning that Casey's giving, and as we know, Casey is quite familiar with the Bible, so it wouldn't be surprising that he would know that, awake or asleep, but that was the message that was given to this kid. So this kid actually turns out grows up, winds up supervising radar network installations for use against Rommel's troops in World War II. He eventually gets offered a promotion because he's so good at this, and it was a little unclear about the work that they wanted him to do, but he surmised that it was probably relating to the development of the atomic bomb. And he remembered at that point in his life his reading from Edgar Casey when he was a kid, and he turned it down. He even sent a letter to his parents, who obviously also were present at the reading, and said, I hope I've made the right decision here. This was a promotion, and this was a lot more money, but I feel like based on what Mr. Casey told me, I shouldn't pursue this. And this was somebody that Edgar Evans Casey was familiar with because he was an active member of the Association for Research and Enlightenment at the time. So this was not just an anecdote that passed through their transom. It was somebody that they were engaged with on a regular basis. So, according to Edgar Evans Casey, he wound up, quote, not rich, but has a beautiful family and is doing very well. So, That was the change that that kid made based on his reading. There was another kid that is cited in the book, had the same kind of warning, warned of being alive previously in Atlantis and at that time, quote, impelling people to submit to another's will, end quote, which is obviously not a great thing. This gentleman wound up directing a large electronics company that made rangefinders for battleships. According to Edgar Evans Casey, the son of Edgar Casey, and the author of the book, Edgar Casey on Atlantis, according to Edgar Evans this gentleman wound up with a pretty unhappy life. He lost his marriage, and uh, there was an implication, I believe, of maybe alcoholism and other issues that just things didn't work out great for him. So these choices signify what's at the center of Casey's message about Atlantis and these two camps. You can either embrace this spiritual and brotherly existence and love for your fellow man Or you could go down the other path where you really need to be careful of falling in love with technology and then using that technology to wage war or enforce servitude of others whom you ultimately wind up viewing as inferior, in addition to treating them not as people but things. Many of the people in the readings who had previous incarnations in Atlantis fell into these different camps, and Casey was saying there are lessons to be learned from what you did last time around. So that's the message there. You've got to pick, right or wrong. He talks about also in the book, in a lot of these readings, the night side of life, which is kind of like the Upside Down from Stranger Things. <laughs> it's not really. It's not another dimension. But what he is, is talking about evil and darkness and bad behavior and how you can fall into that. It's got a lot in common with, we come back to the Star Wars of the Force and the dark side of
1: the Force. Too much partying is never a good thing.
0: Yeah. And so you've got to make your choices carefully and think about the ramifications of your choices and especially how they affect your fellow man. And just to sum up, coming back around to the two camps in Atlantis, we're coming back to the idea that the sons of Belial are the ones who are not really caring for their fellow man, giving in to hedonistic desires, both in terms of taking advantage of technology and other beings and treating other people as things. And then we have the sons of the law of one who are more spiritual and more interested in spiritual
1: development for everyone. Well, they were trying to help these beings as well, this lower developed class of entities, creatures on the earth. And I think the bigger point here is that it's not so much about you taking pleasures in your senses as an individual, is that you are subjugating others and taking advantage of them and using them as slaves and creating torment for them in their lives and not caring about it and wanting to continue. And how can we use more technology to subjugate these people and others for our own desires? So you could look at it that way, is that now you're starting to affect others with your desires, and that's not good. And then the faction of the sons of the law of one, remember their connection to this higher plane of existence, where they were more spiritual and more positive beings, and therefore, at least if they're going to be in their physical selves, they were going to help these other people that were being subjugated. And that's where the rift occurred, And so now what you see developing over the next era of Atlantis is this technology wanting to be used for these different purposes, one of positive forces, one of negative forces. Another idea that comes up
0: a lot in these readings is the idea of this big meeting, which I thought was really fascinating. It was called at one point the Great Congress, or a big meeting between nations. This supposedly happened around the year 50,722 BC, as it's cited in the book. And the point of this meeting, this was another thing I was surprised about, was to come up with a plan to combat animal life that had threatened to overrun the Earth. That idea is on page 77 of Edgar Casey on Atlantis. And the meeting was held in Atlantis, and there's a lot of discussions of technology associated with what to do about this, what's going on with this animal life. There's actually discussions of laser-like death rays and airships, all of course created by the sons of Belial, this technology listen to this portion of the reading. This is 2749-1. This was given on May 13th, 1926. In days when the peoples of nations gathered together to defend themselves against fowls of air and beasts of fields, they came to a meeting in lighter than air machine. And listen to this quote as well. This is from reading 262-39. This reading was answer 13 as specified in that. As to the manner in which these gathered, it was very much as if the Graf were to start to the various lands to pick up representatives. The guess there on the part of Edgar Evans Casey of what his father meant in that reading was the Graf was making a reference to the Graf Zeppelin. For those of you who haven't heard of the Graf Zeppelin, that was a dirigible, like the Hindenburg, a hydrogen-filled rigged airship, which flew from 1928 to 1937. It was German. And it was uh, named after the German airship pioneer Ferdinand von Zeppelin, who was a count, Graf, in the German nobility. And this particular Zeppelin was retired after the Hindenburg disaster. So they're making a, a connection there, or Casey is, in his sleeping state to these lighter-than-air ships that were used by Atlantis to gather all these people up for this big meeting to decide what to do about the animals overrunning the Earth. Yes. And then they talked about death rays. I mean, it's crazy. There's a lot going on.
1: I told you it was pretty good science fiction at the onset here.
0: Yeah. And here's one other part about the animals. It actually goes on to talk about how the creatures were enormous. That's a quote. Uh, That's from reading 5249-1. And that there were these plans made to deal with them, but... Ice, nature, and God changed the poles, and the animals were destroyed, though man attempted it at the time. And that was from a reading given on June 12, 1944. So there's a lot happening here. It's going to have a big meeting. We're going to use all this technology to get rid of these animals that are threatening us. Oh, wait, uh, there's a big natural disaster. We don't have to worry about it anymore. That's the (laughs) overall message here,
1: right? Well, technology was being developed, and again, this is something where it could be used for positive purposes, at least in the view of humans and humanoid creatures, is that you have these terrible beasts, these very large beasts. And something interesting I noticed was that the readings didn't actually come out and say dinosaurs. No. So we do know that very large and dangerous creatures like Megalodon and Titanoboa and very large crocodiles like purosaurus brazilensis, I'm missing some consonants there, I'm sure. Yeah. We think of those not as dinosaur types, but they were massive much larger than the animals we have today. And that's a general consensus that a lot of animals that we know of today were in larger form, maybe in this 50,000 year period range and before that they were terrorizing the earth. That's what you get from the readings is that there was all kinds of nasty predators. And so technologies were developed by the Atlanteans and others on the earth to combat this, one of them being explosives, chemical explosives that were being used, but also something that would be not so much a death ray, as I, I think I said in part two, where Tesla himself, who was working on one, said, it's not a ray. It's not a ray. It's a particle weapon. So he, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger from yeah. Kindergarten Cop, <laughs> that it was more of a charged particle or particle beam weapon that was developed. Not so much a ray as what you might think in 50 sci-fi, but pretty far out there for somebody coming up with this in 1920 to 1940 where the readings for Casey were happening. So again, I come back to the point where these are pretty far out sci-fi ideas coming from someone's subconscious or dreamlike state or just from their imagination, and that there are a lot of things thought up by sci-fi writers that never came to pass, but some of these are actually being worked on today, but were far off concepts during his time. Well, coming around to a broad overview of what
0: Edgar Evans took away from his father's readings about Atlantis, there's a little section here. There were five points that he came up with that I thought were interesting. I wanted to read these from page 82 of the paperback version of Edgar Cayce on Atlantis. These are his takeaways and interpretations of his dad's readings. One, man has existed in the earth for at least 10 million years. Two, Atlantis was one of the places where man as such developed. Three, man's origin was as a spirit, not a physical body. These souls projected themselves into matter, probably for their own diversion, interrupting an evolutionary pattern, then going on in the earth. Through the use of his creative powers for selfish purposes, man became entangled in matter or materiality to such an extent that he nearly forgot his divine origin and nature. Four, a very long time ago, man attained great technological prowess, equal to, if not surpassing, that existing today. Keeping in mind now, this book was published in 1968 originally. Five, just as the misuse of their spiritual powers brought turmoil, strife, and questioning among themselves, men's misuse of scientific and material achievements brought physical destruction in the earth. So Edgar goes on from here to actually draw parallels to a book called Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. This sounds like a super fascinating book, by the way, which I was not aware of until we did this particular series. Waters' dad was part Cheyenne, and that led to Frank Waters being fascinated with Native Americans, particularly of the southwestern U.S. But Edgar Evans points out a lot of striking parallels between Hopi creation myths and the Atlantean readings. According to Edgar Evans, Hopi medicine men would diagnose someone's illness by looking at them through small crystals. He conjectures that that was in an effort to see auras. He additionally points out that the first Hopi world was destroyed because people, quote, used the vibratory centers of their bodies solely for earthly purposes, forgetting their creator, end quote. It goes on to say, "...that world was destroyed by volcanic action and fire, but some people survived by hiding in caves." Then they founded a second world that thrived, with villages and the trading of goods. But this went south too, because they started falling in love with the goods.
1: Mm. The point with this is that the attaining of these material possessions does not bring happiness. No. They are useful tools. They can bring pleasure in their use— as long as you're not harming others with them. Like I said, don't terrorize people on the road with your fancy new sports car. But the idea for people is that you often see this happening. They work so hard for these possessions, a nice big house, a really expensive car, and all these things that are the trappings of current civilization here. But they don't bring happiness because that's not the point of them. And that's what we're forgetting is that... That's the whole point about being spiritual versus material physical beings, is that that's a physical fun experience. But you should be keeping in mind your higher self and your spiritual being in that these come and go. As the pharaohs have pointed out, you can't really take it with you. You can be buried with your shiny new car, but can you really drive it on the other side? Probably not. And it's would you even say. need yeah, a car? We don't know.
0: I was, I was actually giving that thought for a minute, um, but probably not, no. No, because you don't care about it at that point.
1: If you can fly around as a spirit wherever you want to go throughout the universe, you don't really need a car to do that. right? But I would go check out Elon Musk's convertible floating in space yeah. just to see. Yeah, I wonder what that
0: looks like now. Yeah,
1: just to see how much the the radiation has torn it up, I'm sure. <laughs> like, just what does that look like? And it's yeah. just glowing with radioactivity right now. But that's the bigger point of it with these devices. And that's also something, uh, before I forget here, another interesting tie-in, like a lot of these readings have tie-ins to existing ancient myths and legends. And And you could say maybe that's where Casey was getting it. And even as we said at the beginning here, His son, Edgar Evans, posited that, well, we don't really know where this information is coming from. And maybe it was a psychic feat that Casey is pulling this psychically from other sources that are known. But it was still quite a feat to do. But one of the inventions, uh, I think we may be talking about here, that they had these large cigar UFO-like craft that could travel through the air and under the water. Yes. However they wanted. And they were powered centrally by... Again, we're. I don't want to jump the gun here talking about uh, the technology section here. But... We're about to touch a little
0: bit on it. And you might be able to explain it better to me because you seem to have a little bit of a better understanding of this technology stuff than I do. No, I'm making to... this all up. It's
1: well, okay. <laughs> from what I remember from the book. Yeah. The point is that uh, they had these ships. That's what they took around the earth to gather what seemed like scientists and leaders, people who were interested in developing ideas to combat this problem with this great Congress, and flew around, gathered them up. They also had something that was like television or a mass communication system around the earth. Don't actually picture flat screen TVs, but something that they were able to, at least mentally or even audio visually, communicate with other people around the earth. That's how they sent the word out, like, hey, we got to do something about this problem. They send people around. This description of these ships reminded me of another ancient mythic tome here, and that would be the Mahabharata. And it's one of two major Sanskrit epics, Coming from ancient India, but they have Vimanas. You'll hear a lot about this if you watch these ancient technology shows. But just that the idea of ships flying around that had destructive properties, great battles between two factions, all this stuff occurs in other cultures. And some of that is even referenced as we're going to talk about these destructive forces, something like atomic energy being developed in Atlantis may indeed line up a little bit with technologies described in the Bhagavad Gita, which a reference to that was made famously by Robert Oppenheimer when they tested the atomic bomb, quoting, I have become death. Like, what has happened here? We have unleashed a massive earth-killing power. We have to be careful about this. Well, the readings from Edgar would suggest the same, that the Atlanteans had also faced these same problems and didn't do the right thing, and eventually that would cause two other destructions of Atlantis as a continent.
0: I listened to this reading, 519-1. This was given February 20th, 1934. It's a little excerpt from it. In Atlantean land at time of development of electrical forces that dealt with transportation of craft from place to place, photographing at a distance, reading inscriptions through walls even at a distance, overcoming gravity itself, and preparation of the crystal The terrible, mighty crystal. Much of this brought destruction. So that could be an allusion to some type of powerful explosive force, or there's also been allusions to some type of motive force, similar to the kinds of things that Tesla was trying to develop when he was attempting to develop wireless power transmission.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting in that there is general talk in the readings about power being derived from the use of crystals that somehow had a connection to the energy produced inside the Earth. Geothermic energy, geomagnetic energy, somehow that was able to be harnessed, but in technology that was aimed to direct this energy, that actually caused these volcanic eruptions and upheaval and the breaking up of the land. Right, they went too far. Yeah, well, you think like, unless you're talking about Star Wars and the Death Star, what possible beam could destroy a whole planet or break up at least major chunks of land? Well, Again, with a nod to current sci-fi, I don't know if they borrowed from it, but they are certainly some parallel ideas here that some kind of particle beam that harnesses the internal energy of the earth could be used to massive effect, either to help or to blow up your own place. Before we move on, I did want to come back to one
0: more parallel point about the Hopis from Frank Waters' book, as discussed by Edgar Evans Casey. The Hopi's second world, the one after they had the villages and the trading of goods and all that, was destroyed as well, much like Atlantis being destroyed three times ultimately. And the story of the Hopi creation myth details how the world started spinning the wrong way and rolled over twice. Oceans rose, mountains sank, and the planet froze over like an ice age, which
1: uh-huh.
0: Ed Grevin says, hey, does that suggest a polar shift? Is there a parallel there between the Hopi stories and the things that his dad was saying about Atlantis? So coming back around to the Firestone, this is similar to what we were talking about technologically. This seemed to be a way to transmit power the way that Tesla was trying to do when he was trying to create wireless power. And this was some sort of non-conductive thing. This, I did not get the sense that this was a crystal, although I could be misinterpreting the readings, which is very easy to do. But it was compared to asbestos in the book. So the question was, whatever this thing was, it would be in some kind of structure that sounded like an observatory that could open up at the top, mm-hmm. yes, right? yeah, And then light from the stars, their energy would be gathered into it. And that there was power that would emanate from this for crafts by radio vibrations, wireless power that would somehow power these crafts that were flying around. And there were rays that were invisible to the naked eye. And again, coming back to your point about these crafts that can move through more elements than just air, that they can move through air and water. Yeah. So... There's a lot going on there with the Firestone. It's a very interesting thing.
1: Yeah, it's not, of course, detailed with schematics in the readings, but it sounded to me like these energy centers would open much like observatory domes would, and it would collect energy and it would radiate this energy directed to power these craft that could fly all over the Earth. I don't know at what speeds, but they could obviously travel all over the Earth according to the readings So yes, things were centrally powered and again, connected somehow to the power generated by the earth as well. They had discovered this technology, but because of that, it was so powerful, it also affected what was going on inside the earth. There's also talk
0: in the readings about archaeological discoveries that had already been made at the time of the reading of objects that detailed some information about the Firestone, maybe how it worked or what it was. But these archaeological discoveries were, they were already in museums, and that folks in the museums didn't necessarily realize what they had, whether they were on display or in some back room or Warehouse 13, where they hadn't been properly cataloged. But he was suggesting that this information has already been discovered,
1: but people just don't know how to interpret it from these past times. Well, it does remind me of that one hieroglyph from an ancient Egyptian structure, and I can't remember exactly where it, and it always, I'm sure, gets brought up on these ancient alien shows, which I actually have not seen too many of, but it does look like a Buck Rogers spaceship, and it's a singular hieroglyph by itself. I think it even has portals on it, so it's, it's very unusual. So yeah, the, these kind of things are being brought up all the time. On these ancient alien-type shows, one of your favorite guys, Giorgio sukulos Yes. He wears a pin that looks like an aircraft which is an ancient item. I can't remember exactly where. There is a carving of what looks like a rocket from Sumeria that looks like it has a little guy wearing a (laughs) spacesuit sitting in it, and the head is missing. And that's known as the Sumerian spaceship. That is an interesting artifact as well. You just wonder where these things are like, like UPAs almost, like they're out of place artifacts. And maybe it's just art. Maybe it's just the imagination of the artisan making it. Or maybe it was part of a legend from thousands or tens of thousands of years before that remained. But there are also mentions of other types of technology around this time, which would be pretty advanced for a culture that we would picture living back then. Things like machines being powered by steam, elevators going down into the earth, the use of atmospheric gases, as you mentioned, like with something like a Graf Zeppelin, That they were able to make use of this and also build a lot of amazing things of their day which are now lost under the waters. But some pieces of evidence may exist, and this is what you're talking about, people are pointing to.
0: Well, the crux of all this is that apparently the sons of Belial were into creating slaves and even using technology to possibly custom-build folks for particular jobs, which is, as you said, Forrester alluded to earlier, genetic Mm -hmm. engineering. And the sons of the Law of One felt this was wrong, and they wanted only to help these more primitive humans develop higher states of consciousness.
1: Yeah, one description I thought was fascinating, and and maybe you can correct me on the details on this, is that I had read previously there were descriptions in the readings of these genetically engineered creatures, these replicant-like beings, as having strange appendages that were designer at the time. So you could create a being that had a tail, or one with fur, or feathers, strictly for your own amusement, as a piece in your home to show off to others. And the sons of the law of one said, okay, that's really wrong. Now you're really messing with God's creation here and his will. And we're going to create hospitals using some of this technology to correct these people and take them out from under your thumb for your own pleasures. And they were trying to help these beings. And of course, the sons of Belial did not like that. They wanted to continue with what really sounds like, as you said, genetic engineering. Possibly coming from the imagination of somebody in the 20s to 40s. So that's a little advanced too, as sci-fi.
0: Yeah, it's all ahead of its time. And I have a theory on it that I want to talk about in my conclusions. It's not really a theory about where it came from, but certainly something that it influenced. Well, like the Hopi legend, Atlantis was destroyed twice before finally succumbing a third time. Now, according to Edgar Evans, Frank Waters mentioned how the Hopi creation myth stated that the third destruction was brought about by a catastrophic flood- when, quote, waves higher than mountains rolled in on the land and continents broke asunder and sank beneath the seas, end quote. He points out that they even had something called a patuvota. I'm probably not saying that right. But this apparently translates as a shield of hide that they could fly through the air with people on it to be used in warfare. This is the Uh Hopi. And anyway, the destruction came about because they had become corrupt, wicked, and warlike but some people survived by going to sea in boats. Sound familiar? Yeah. It's the same end game for Atlantis,
1: really. Yeah, we've talked about the flood myth occurring in several different cultures, all apparently independently, but remember the ball of tar that the man and woman created? And I think this is in Adam and Eve and a flood story rolled into one where they created a ball out of twigs and tar and were able to survive the flood. But from the readings, the floods were actually created by all this land upheaval caused by the Atlanteans. And there's one theory you and I, Scott, had talked about before is that the possibility that in the Straits of Gibraltar, which is connected to the Atlantis region here, that if one of these massive rocks fissures and slides into the ocean, it could create a tidal wave on the eastern seaboard of the United States that is over 10,000 feet tall.
0: Oh, I don't know if that's the location. I know that that's true with the Canaries.
1: Oh, maybe that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, Yeah.
0: it's the Canary Islands. They have volcanic lava tubes, so they're structurally weak. And if there's one particular island that if it were to have the proper separation and slide, it would create— I don't know if it's 10,000 feet, but it is a devastating tsunami for the entire East Coast. This is Steve. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Ray. Let's get back to the show.
1: What I remember from geology in high school is that there is evidence that at least in Washington State and probably Oregon, that at some point in prehistoric times, a wave so large that it traveled in at least 300 miles inland from the West Coast. So these things are possible on large planetary scales, but whether this happened because of Atlantis remains to be seen. Well, we can't talk about Casey, and we're getting
0: near the end of this episode, without talking about the famous Hall of Records, which comes up in his readings as a repository of ancient data on humanity, and specifically Atlantis. And these records were taken as Atlantis was being destroyed for the third time, and they were spirited away and hidden in three different locations, if I remember correctly. But the one that we're talking about now is the one related to the Sphinx, which is pretty fascinating. I want to read some from this reading. This is 378-16 about the location of the Hall of Records. The question was, give in detail what the sealed room contains. And then I'm going to take a portion of that answer about where it is located. This in position lies as the sun rises from the waters. The line of the shadow or light falls between the paws of the Sphinx that was later set as the sentinel or guard, and which may not be entered from the connecting chambers from the sphinx's paw, right paw, until the time has been fulfilled when the changes must be active in this sphere of man's experience, between then the sphinx and the river. And here is another reading. This is from reading 5750-1. As given, that temple was destroyed at the time there was the last destruction in Atlantis. Yet, as the time draws nigh when changes are to come about, there may be the opening of those three places where the records are one, to those that are the initiates in the knowledge of the one God. The temple by Iltar will then rise again. Also, there will be the opening of the temple or hall of records in Egypt, and those records that were put into the heart of the Atlantean land may also be found there, that have been kept, for those that are of that group. The records are one. So I want to go back to the website that we referenced in part two, near-death.com, Kevin Williams' website, where we took a lot of the information about the prophecies, and he wrote an interesting synopsis of events relating to the search for these cavities underneath the Sphinx. Graham Hancock and Robert Bavall stated in their 1997 book entitled Message of the Sphinx that American archaeologists and the Egyptian government had blocked investigations around the Sphinx, including attempts to locate any underground cavities. In 1998, Dr. Zahi Hawass, chief director of the Supreme Council of Antiquities, undertook excavations between the main body of the Sphinx at Giza and rediscovered access tunnels to several large, apparently natural caves directly under the Sphinx. Dr. Hawass commented to the TV documentary crew that documented the 1998 excavations that he suspected that there could be other cavities beneath the structure based on the evidence of the small watercourse that had caused some minor structural damage to stonework on the flank of the Sphinx. Robert Baval later wrote in his book in 1999 entitled Secret Chamber that Egyptian authorities granted an American team a license to search for the Hall of Records under the Sphinx and how they discovered there may be three passages around the Sphinx, two with unknown origin and one that is supposedly a small dead-end shaft beneath the head of the Sphinx of 19th century origins. But according to Baval, for decades, any real and significant progress in the quest for the secret chambers at Giza has been thwarted by Dr. Hawass. In July 2011, however, Dr. Hawass lost his position with the Supreme Council of Antiquities during the Egyptian crisis with the Muslim Brotherhood, and it remains to be seen if the new administration will allow the search to begin again. So that's what happened there, the Arab Spring, he was essentially wound up losing his position there. There's a new guy now, Khaled El anani who has been in that position from March 23rd to 2016, And he stated that his primary focus would be solving the budget deficit of the ministry, given that many projects were stalled for lack of funding. So I don't know. What do you know about what's going on with the Sphinx's Paw and the Hidden Chamber and the Hall of Records and all that at this point? Uh, This is a good place for us to start talking about the, the modern search for Atlantis, I think.
1: Right. Well, what I know is that attempts were made, I think, back in the 70s and 80s. These ideas aren't new, of course. Edgar Casey's readings have been around since 1945 at, at the time of his passing, so people have been aware and have tried to do their own research, and there have been efforts to get at what's underneath the Sphinx, and I believe ground-penetrating radar was used, and as far as I know, caverns were detected, but later determined to be natural caverns, not chambers, but I definitely would love to know what's underneath there, because and a special that I watched with Zahi Hawass, from an accidental discovery, the tomb of Osiris was found. It was not the actual tomb, of course. It's, it's a symbolic tomb, but there was water underneath there. And I think a donkey stepped in a hole, as usually the case. Chambers were found leading from this ceremonial burial site going back to the pyramids. And I remember his last statements were, oh, it's going to take us decades to clear all this out and uh, find out where these lead. So you never really find out what's happening or what political reason things aren't happening. But I do believe that there is something with the Sphinx. Uh, I do believe the theory is that it's much older than previously thought. It was thought to be 4,500 to 5,000 years old, and some think it could be 10,000 to 11,000 years old.
0: Yeah, that's the water erosion theory, right? About the evidence of water erosion around the base of the Sphinx.
1: Exactly. Yes, and a lot of you listeners out there may remember the Joe Rogan Experience episode uh, 1124, where he had Robert Schock on S-C-H-O-C-H to discuss his theories about the age of the Sphinx, and water erosion, and all the theories that he's come up with, and it's really fascinating. And you can find a clip of that on YouTube. Just look up Joe Rogan Experience and Robert, S-C-H-O-C-H. Pretty fascinating stuff. So there's a lot of people out there that have done some serious study. Of course, that's not accepted generally, but they believe the Sphinx at least, not connected even with Atlantis, but it is much, much older than people think. And that brings up some interesting implications.
0: Well, the truth is Atlantis has been discovered many, many times. It's very much a victim of mystery solved over and over and over again. I actually was, I wanted to find something super current just before we started discussing this section. And I immediately found an article called Atlantis found in parentheses again, and exasperated <laughs> scientists in parentheses again, raise their eyebrows. This was written by Laura Gegel, an associate editor of livescience.com. And this was published on November 28th, 2018. We've got a link to this article in our show notes. Everyone should check it out. It's suggesting that they used uh, satellite imagery to uncover a new location for it in Spain. I'm not going to get into all those specifics here. I will read one parenthetical reference that she makes in her article here. People have made dozens of such claims over the years, locating the legendary society in Antarctica, Bolivia, Turkey, Germany, Malta, the Caribbean, and elsewhere. And uh, there's a quote here from Ken Fetter, a professor of anthropology at Central Connecticut State University. Bless their hearts. If they're correct about this, that would be awesome. But here's my problem. As an archaeologist, I know that I always need to be in the company of my bullshit detector. And these guys, they have done just about everything they possibly can to set off my bullshit detector. <laughs> so that's the quote from that article. You can see that people are still looking and they claim to have found it all over the place. Now, Edgar Evans in his book points out that the discoveries, all the discoveries, never quite match up geographically or time period wise. So he's saying that people are trying to make it fit, but it's not quite right, which is funny because everybody who talks about Atlantis is accused of trying to make the idea of Atlantis fit into the real world anyway. So it's both sides are saying this. There is one story that he mentioned in his book that I thought was really interesting and I wound up drilling down on. This is pretty fascinating. In 1898, I think it was, Alexander Telephone and Telegraph was looking for a lost submarine telephone cable that they had run across the ocean, if you can believe that, in 1898. This cable was two miles down, and this was 500 miles north of the Azores, and they had a grappling hook down, and this hook pulled up lava. That in itself, not so surprising. What was surprising was that the lava was vitreous, just like you see on the ground, near a volcano in, say, Hawaii or something, or if you've ever been in a place where there's a volcano, you know what lava looks like. You've seen lava, or if you like to make guacamole, I have a bowl made of lava. You know what vitreous is.
1: (laughs) The a lot of little holes in it? Yeah. That
0: type of lava rock? Sure. Makes the perfect guacamole. Uh So, But the catch is, lava does not look like that unless it cooled in the air. Lava cooled in the water takes on a crystalline form, which is more like volcanic glass, which we've all seen as well. And that's especially at depth because the pressure from the depth doesn't allow it to have the holes in it and it cools down more like glass. Now, according to Pierre Termier at the time, it would disintegrate after 15,000 years. So the presence of vitreous lava on the seafloor would mean that either it was moved there after it cooled or the place where it was laying two miles down was above water when the lava was formed. And on top of that, it would have had to have been within 15,000 years prior to when they discovered it. So this gentleman, Pierre Termier, at the time, he was a French geologist. I mean, he still is, but he's passed away. He died in 1930, who had analyzed the lava that came up. And he gave a whole lecture on how he believed this was connected to Atlantis. However, this is something that Edgar Evans Casey references in his book, which again was published originally in 1968. There is a rebuttal to that. And we found the rebuttal as well from a man named Charles... Shukert. And here's just a small quote from that rebuttal. Although Termier's claims are still quoted by some as factual, their scientific basis has been gravely undermined long ago, further weakening the case for Atlantis in the Atlantic. So you can see both sides of the coin here. We have links to both of those. You can look at both and decide what you think. I actually got a lot of great information on this from a website called Atlantipedia. That's A T L A N T I P E D I A dot IE, which I believe is Ireland, because Tony O'Connell is the gentleman who created the site, and he was born in Dublin, so I'm gathering that he is Irish. And he has compiled just so much information about Atlantis and put it on the internet in a digital form. He's like a modern day Edgerton Sykes. Now, Edgerton Sykes is the gentleman who edited the newer version of Ignatius Donnelly's book, and Edgerton Sykes was known for having the most extensive literary collection on Atlantis in the world. He has now since passed away as well. I'm not sure where that collection is. But Tony O'Connell has compiled a lot of stuff too, and he's put it on this website, and he actually even wrote a book called Joining the Dots, Plato's Atlantis in the Central Mediterranean. Tony O'Connell, you can find this on Amazon. We'll have a link to it. It has a foreword by Dr. Anton Mifsud. And it's only got four reviews, so I don't think it was a big seller. Probably people didn't know about it, but each one of those reviews is five stars. So maybe they're all friends of his, but (laughs) it sounds interesting to me. I actually ordered a copy. I don't have it yet. But when you look at Atlantipedia, you can just go there and read and read and read and read about this. And that's where I found the information relating to Termier and the rebuttal to Termier's ideas. And that's the thing you have to do with this. It's a lot like the Amelia Earhart mystery or other mysteries that have been being studied a long time. Obviously, this has been studied a lot longer. You have to look at... New science that's been introduced that maybe refutes some of the ideas that were older and what ideas still haven't been refuted because you have to look at the most modern picture of the mystery that you're looking at
1: which may also very likely be usurped by further research years from now right exactly it's always developing that's one of the things I love about science is that it's always evolving in a way and things being found later contradict others, and it causes debates, and this is certainly debated, and I just want to point out that this is all separate from what Edgar Casey was saying, at least as far as the civilization of Atlantis. These researchers are not out to prove that, they just want to say that this chunk of land existed, it was above ocean levels at the time, and then somehow subsided. Well, they're still looking for it today. There's been
0: a lot of searches. And in fact, the Association for Research and Enlightenment generally mounts about four expeditions a year to go out and look for the remains of Atlantis. I think that probably the most promising one and the one that people had heard about the most, and I think the jury's still out on it, is the Bimini Road. And this is a fascinating one. And this was discovered in 1968. So there's even an in-search of on it, which is pretty awesome. But let's look back at, I'm going to take another look at Atlantipedia website again. This was published on June 5th, 2010 by the webmaster and researcher Tony O'Connell. And this sums up the Bimini Road slash wall. The Bimini Road is located in about 10 feet of water off Paradise Point on Bimini Island in the Bahamas. It was investigated in 1968 by Dr. J. Manson Valentine, Jacques Mayol, Harold Klimo, and Robert Angove. The discovery coincided with the prophecy of Edgar Cayce, the American psychic who pronounced in 1933 that parts of Atlantis would re-emerge in the late 60s. His exact words are recorded as, quote, A portion of the temples may yet be discovered under the slime of ages and seawater near Bimini, expected in 68 or 69, not so far away. So that is pretty crazy, This goes on to say a comparable alignment of blocks in 22 meters of water was found off the coast of Lanzarote in the Canaries and originally reported in the Belgian magazine Kadath in 1987 and noted in the Science Frontiers website. I'm going to skim down a little bit here to something that Tony says further down here. Without wishing to rain on anybody's parade, it should be pointed out that Manson Valentine was a fan of Casey's, and as a consequence, it has sometimes been inferred that the date of his discovery might have been engineered to agree with Casey's prediction and enhance the subsequent publicity. Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince have pointed out, and there's a citation for this on the website, that the Bimini Road was known to the local islanders for years and even offered to show it to its discoverers in air quotes. (laughs) So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of controversy around all of this stuff. The Bimini Road is pretty impressive looking. If you go online and you Google it up and you take a look at the Bimini Road, it is hard to believe that it's a natural formation, although there's a lot of research that's been done that suggests that it is natural. So it is possible, but it doesn't look very much like the entropy that nature produces when it's left to its own devices. It looks like something man-made, but just because something looks man-made doesn't mean that it is. Right. Still, I mean, if you take into account that it's in Bimini and that it did become publicly known in 68 or 69, and you start to think about what Casey said, regardless of the fact if the discovery, in quotes, was engineered, there's still some sort of synchronicity going on there, regardless of the nature of how it evolved and became public information, although it's We might be saying which came first, the chicken or the egg, because if he says, oh, it's going to be discovered in 68, then somebody finds it, and they say, we found it in 68 or 69. So there's a lot going on there. There's been a lot of other investigations, and when they go and research them deeper, they generally come up not finding anything that conclusively points to the existence of Atlantis or to a connection to Atlantis. So there, but they are not thwarted. They're still looking. They're still looking. And it's a pretty serious endeavor, I imagine. It takes a lot of funds to keep that search up, and it's hard to know where to look. It's a big planet, and the ocean
1: is most of it. <laughs> so Yeah, it's underwater. <laughs> that, As we've experienced ourselves with the peripheral involvement with the Buca search, it's not easy, even when you know something is right there. Uh,
0: yes, and if, you, and if you're if you not familiar with what Forrest is referring to there, Buka is the island where a guest of the show, uh, Bill Snavely, has found an aircraft that bears a striking resemblance to Amelia Earhart's aircraft. And that's an ongoing investigation. But yes, we've learned a whole lot about what happens when something sits on the bottom of the ocean there. In that case, it's metal, but still, that aircraft is severely encrusted with coral. And getting to the bottom of what it is, is a very difficult thing to do, as it would be with anything that's, in that case, has only been underwater for about 80 years. But The Bimini Road, if it is what it is, we're talking about thousands of years. And if it's natural, a natural formation, then millions, and it makes it even harder to really figure out
1: what the origin is. Yeah. Or it could be 50,000 years old, or more, if you believe the Atlantis story.
0: Yeah, that's true. And they've done some carbon dating on it. It's a a rabbit hole we're not going to get fully down on here, because as we explained, we're mostly talking about Casey and his readings relating to Atlantis, as opposed to the actual intense multi-part series that Atlantis would work out to be if we really dove down on it. But we'll have links to this stuff for those of you that are interested. Honestly, one of the best places to start, I think, is Atlantipedia. And of course, the Association for Research and Enlightenment. Between those two, you can get pretty much the full picture of everything that's going on these days. Well, I think it's time for us maybe to talk about our conclusions. Are you ready to do that? Yeah, why not? Why not? Well, I'll you know what? I'll go first here, because I did put some thought into this. Not a ton of thought, but I did put some thought into this. I feel like there's no question that Edgar Casey's prophecies inspired nearly every episode of the first run of Star Trek. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything uh, I was reading, I feel like I was, you know, I was like, I've seen this before. The law of the one and the, you know, I remember once they went to a planet and there was Landru, wait till Landru comes kind of thing. And There's a lot of parallels there, and I would not be surprised if that writer's room was borrowing ideas from Casey's predictions to flush out some really cool
1: stories. Oh, we mentioned this earlier in the show, and and maybe parts one and two, is that he was very influential around this time. So not only in his own time, but he continued to be after that, because, you know, with these more spiritual discussions and thinking of the late 60s and 70s and into the new age, which many people say, again, he was the true father of because he introduced a lot of ideas to a Western audience, that he is firmly cemented in at least popular culture, but also spiritual culture of a lot of different disciplines. And for that alone, he's significant to look at. And there's a few people, of course, who have negative opinions about him, but I don't believe that they really know the full story, because from what we've gathered here is that, yeah, you may not believe everything about him, but personally, and the legacy that he left is not a negative one. That's a valid point. Well, to me, what I see, obviously, is that the big
0: picture with regard to all of his readings is really about morality and human behavior and how to be a good person although it's wrapped up in these exotic ideas that are foreign to humanity right now, but in a lot of ways, strikingly parallel with allegories and religious beliefs that have long been in place. So I think philosophically... You can look at the things he said and be like, well, that's crazy and picking up ships and spaceships and crystals, and (laughs) how do you act this way? And But then when you strip away the parts of it that you don't understand and you look at the underlying behavioral instructions that he's giving out, it's the same thing that the Bible says. It's the same thing that every religion says that supports good behavior and love of your fellow man.
1: Yeah, it's like we always say, really look at the message.
0: Exactly. The message is the thing, and the message really isn't that foreign or strange at all. It just seems to come, like I said, in a strange wrapper. But here's the thing that I do wonder about. Conversely, on the flip side of the coin, one thing that I've given a lot of thought to since we started the show is the idea of the trickster and the paranormal. And that's actually, there's a book called that, which is something I would like to cover this year if we get the chance. But it really started with our look at Skinwalker Ranch, but it it goes on to a lot of the other things that we've looked at in almost every case where there seems to be some sort of interaction with something outside of our reality or our dimension. There are a lot of times the information is indirect or confusing or it seems almost designed to mess with you, and that's the idea of the trickster. So I do wonder, in the case of Mr. Casey... Let's say that we put aside all the questions about, is this a hoax? Is it real? You know, I'm a skeptic, and I'm mad that you are even given this an ounce of consideration. Let's take that aside. Let's say, okay, we all decided that it was real. We've decided that. We're taking the skeptical viewpoint out. He is definitely receiving information, or was, I should say, receiving information of some kind, and it's pertinent and interesting, and we've proven that some of these prophecies have come true. Then, my next question, the question that doesn't seem to get asked because everybody's so busy trying to figure out whether he's a fraud or not, is where is it coming from and what is the point of it? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be coming from where he says it's coming from. So, even if he's led to believe that it's coming from this global consciousness and all of these ideas that he espouses, who is to say that whatever is sending the information isn't just like the Wizard of Oz? It's a man behind a curtain telling him where the information's coming from how would he know the difference it's already such a vague operation so then you start to think well what is the point of this info what if this is just one and again i go back <laughs> i go back to the old star treks there's one where they go to this planet and there's this alien on the planet and he has a house he's a very charismatic guy I can't remember the actor's name he has a house on the planet and he can control reality oh. and it turns out all the reality he's controlling there's a big mirror that in Not the, Q.
1: Is it Q? No, no, no,
0: no, no. no. That's next generation, man. I'm talking about Star Trek. Oh, I see. I'm talking about the first Star Trek, although Q was a good example of that, and that was a great character. But like going back in this episode from the original run, this guy could control reality, but all his power was coming from this mirror in his house, I remember. And at the end, he winds up getting admonished by his parents, in air quotes, and they're just these ethereal voices that are like, have you been playing... With humanity again, or something like that. And he's like, no, I want to stay, he turns into a spoiled <laughs> kid. It's a pretty great performance, actually. Uh-huh. Anyway, my point is, how do we know that whatever is communicating with Mr. Casey is what it says it is, and not some belligerent child with all these powers from another dimension, or some trickster, or something else? It's just hard to know. And that's the thing I always think about when when you get past and these are the thoughts that people never have I think when they're trying to unravel these stories and the reality of whether or not they're true or not, when you get past focusing so hard on whether or not it's real. Nobody seems to stop to think like, okay, well it is real, can we trust it? Can we trust where it's coming from? And I'm not casting aspersions on Mr. Casey. I'm saying, how would he know? How do you know who you're talking to on the other end of the line? You just don't.
1: Well, I don't think he did know. I mean, yeah. I, right, I think you're
0: and right. he admitted that he didn't. So that's one thing that occurred to me as this unfolded, our research in this unfolded. And then I also thought, what if it's a hoax that he's unaware of, but it's his subconscious mind playing tricks on him, taking his personal sense of morality into a fictional world that allows him to get a message out somehow when he's in the trance that he's in or when he's when he's doing the sleeping again, I think it's pretty impressive that he underwent what amounts to physical torture and didn't wake up. That's a hard thing to pretend. Mm -hmm. So I'm not implying that it was a a known hoax on his part. And I'm not even implying that it's a hoax. I'm just saying, how can you know when these things are coming from the other side or coming from your own mind? Because we don't fully understand how our own minds work. So that's another point that I thought of. Then I thought about the ongoing, and we've talked about this before, catastrophes, floods, volcanic disruption that occurs over and over in all these different creation myth stories. We talked about the Hopis in this particular story. We've talked about stuff in the past when we covered the giants and the same thing with Atlantis. And it makes me wonder too, and also I forgot volcanic eruptions, what if... It takes these cultures a certain amount of time to develop and to become technologically sophisticated. And in that amount of time, because of the law of averages, eventually you're going to experience a catastrophic environmental disaster. And then you do when it wipes out a huge portion of your people, and then you have to start over. Maybe that's just something... It's either one big thing that happened to everybody, and these people were all living in different camps at the same time, and they all experienced the floods, the volcanoes, a nuclear winter, or an asteroid hit, or something... Or if you're saying that these existences of these cultures were staggered throughout time, and some of them lost to the ages, maybe they all experienced that type of thing. And then when that thing happened, they ascribed it to something that they were doing wrong. The survivor said, oh, we were too focused on technology. We're too focused on X, Y, or Z. I believe that the buying calendar, the whole point about when it was supposed to be the end of the world, was that technology was going to rise up and cause a problem for the Mayans. This is a theme that goes on and on. But again, the Mayans are the Atlanteans. It's all mixed together. It's this big pot of stew, I guess. So,
1: And also Terminator and The Matrix and a lot of other sci-fi.
0: Yeah. And maybe it'll happen to us. Oh, and there's one other observation I wanted to make that I think is important. And that's when you go back and you read Plato's Dialogues, where this story came from. All of this story is there, really. It's been spelled out there. So it is plausible to me that Casey was familiar with Plato's Dialogues and was able to adapt them into his own version of the story subconsciously, possibly. I think that that's something that could have happened Because there's not a ton of new information in terms of what happened. It's like some of the names have been changed from Zeus has been removed or what have you. But the bottom line is, is the story that plays out in his dialogues is very similar to the story that Casey winds up telling over the years. There's just other specifics, and there's the introduction of technology that adds a different flavor to it. But it's almost like an interpretation that an author might bring to it if they were to repackage Plato's dialogues today and try to update them for a modern audience. So there is something going on there as well that I feel like you have to acknowledge, because when you read those dialogues, you're looking at something that's been around since 355 B.C., Well before Casey started telling the stories himself, and the backbone of the structure of the story is the same, and the morality of it is the same. And there are those that say that when Plato wrote it, it was not about being an actual story, it was meant to provoke a conversation on how states develop and where they can go and how they should behave as they become bigger and more powerful. And it's designed to start that conversation and get people thinking philosophically, and it was never meant to be taken literally. So that's an important fact that I want to get into this episode on Atlantis. And so I'm going to leave you on this point. I remember this. Forrest, did you hear of Asteroid 2019 OK? You ever heard of that? Uh,
1: OK? Yeah. Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) OK. Yes. That's part of the name? Yeah, that's part of the name.
0: Uh, Listen to this headline. This is from uh, an article in the Washington Post. I remember when this happened. This was posted on uh, July 26, 2019 by Allison Chu. She's the journalist that wrote this. Scientists stunned by city killer asteroid that just missed Earth. And I just pulled a couple of excerpts from this because I'm trying to illustrate my point. It snuck up on us pretty quickly, said Brown, an associate professor in Australia with Monash University's School of Physics and Astronomy. He later noted, people are only sort of realizing what happened pretty much after it's already flung past us, End quote. First, there's this issue of size, Duffy said. Asteroid 2019 OK is a sizable chunk of rock, but it's nowhere near as big as the ones capable of causing an event like the dinosaur's extinction. More than 90% of those asteroids, which are more than a half a mile wide or larger, have already been identified by NASA and its partners. Quote, it should worry us all, quite frankly, he said. It's not a Hollywood movie. It's a clear and present danger. Duffy said astronomers have a nickname for the kind of space rock that just came so close to the Earth. City killer asteroids. If the asteroid had struck Earth, most of it would have probably reached the ground, resulting in devastating damage, Brown said. Quote, it would have gone off like a very large nuclear weapon with enough force to destroy a city, he said. Many megatons, perhaps in the ballpark of 10 megatons of TNT, so something not to be messed with. In 2013, the article goes on to point out, a significantly smaller meteor, about 20 meters or 65 feet across, the size of a six-story building, broke up over the city of Chelyabinsk and unleashed an intense shockwave that collapsed roofs, shattered windows, and left about 1,200 people injured. The last space rock to strike Earth, similar in size to asteroid 2019 OK, which, by the way, we almost didn't see, and by the time we did see it, it had already come and gone, was more than a century ago. Brown said that asteroid was known as the Tunguska event, and it caused an explosion that leveled 2,000 square kilometers, or 770 square miles, of forest land in Siberia. I think most people that listen to this show are familiar with Tunguska. It's famous in the paranormal world. And so I'm just saying, you may not know when something like this is going to happen. And then it's going to get baked into the story of your culture and your society. And I think it's possible there's a mixture of these stories out there. Even if it was a small one like this, if you're working with a relatively small culture, it could be enough to get baked into their life story going on for the couple of survivors that survived because they were in a cave or they got in boats after a tsunami came or what have you. I just wonder if all of that stuff is a natural explanation, and then it gets ascribed to, well, what was our behavior right before this thing came out of the sky and killed most of us? I think you have to look at all of that together, but I'm not poo-pooing the spiritual side of it. I'm just saying I like to think about all the options, and that's where my conclusions leave me. I think with Mr. Casey, my jury is out on what he was doing or how he was capable of doing what he was doing. So I'm not going to pass judgment on him as a person other than to say I don't believe he was actively participating in a hoax based on everything that we've read and uncovered. I don't believe that. Where his information was coming from, I'm not sure. Are there some uncanny connections between what he said and what has come to pass? Absolutely. And I'll be keeping an eye on what he did and said uh, from here on out because I'm very interested in it.
1: Well, I think he makes some really interesting points. and if you look at it as I'm about to do as mystical information from somewhere, and I was introduced to Edgar Casey at a very young age by my dad, who'd read a lot of his books. But of course, back then, I didn't have the deeper philosophical capacity about what to make of all of it. But even then, the concepts introduced by him I thought were fascinating and helped to further my lifelong curiosity about life's mysteries, like ghosts and spirits and auras, religion, psychic abilities, past lives, and reincarnation, to name a few. Because what I also noticed at a young age, and having the only somewhat formal instruction on anything supernatural being the very occasional Sunday school class, I I think I maybe attended 10 or so in my youth, is that no one had any answers to the questions I had. I would just get the same old answers about allegory and parables and all the fantastical stuff in the Old Testament was just that, stories to illustrate a religious point of view. So it seemed to me not much religious instruction that I received anyway would entertain the notion of the Nephilim being real, or that a lot of giants that were hybrid offspring of angelic spirits and humans roamed the earth and wreaked havoc actually existed. Or if they did, it was a story that appeared in Holy Writ and left at that. But also what I realized early on is that there is a lot that is not explained in the Bible. As a kid, I had questions about other people being on the earth during the time of Adam and Eve. Like, if they were the first humans on earth, then are we all offspring of theirs? Are we all inbred? And is that the case for all the animals after the flood? I mean, these are, of course, questions of a child here. But clearly, in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain is driven from the land for killing his brother Abel, in verse 14, he complains to the Lord that after he becomes a restless wanderer of the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. And God responds that he will put his mark on Cain so that no one who finds him would kill him. So then my kid question was, who are all these other people? Where did they come from? What's their story? Were they always there and for how long? Or did they just pop up overnight? And then, of course, there were other questions like, what did Isaac have to say about his father Abraham trying to kill him? He's pretty silent on the matter, and the Bible doesn't say. So what I like about Edgar Cayce's story of Atlantis and other readings is that it felt like you were getting at least some inside secret information on these mysteries, even if you didn't know what to believe about them. And that's what I still like about them to this day. But this raises another problem, or I guess question, and that is what to believe about them. Could it be like the Matrix storyline and that their civilization of Zion was destroyed five times and rebuilt five times before, and they just didn't know it? Well, as far as what each of us should believe about all of these readings and what should we all now accept as evidence, I go back to what the readings say themselves, that what each of us decides as truth or fiction or fable depends upon the trend of our own minds. If you're looking for proof of Atlantis or reincarnation, you're going to first have to decide what is evidence and then realize that what you think is evidence won't be evidence for others. It might be like the remedies. If you believed in them, they're much more likely to work. If you didn't, then the efficacy is diminished or non-existent. So if you can find truth and value within the story of Atlantis as described in the readings, and it's a relevant and cautionary tale for your own betterment in this life, then let there be truth in the tale. If not, then the story might as well be fiction. And it's a different road to something like evidence for the medical readings. Effectiveness can be measured and tracked if a group is willing to do so. So, for my own proof and evidence with the remedies, I think it's quite possible they were effective for most of the individuals who got readings, from what we've found anyway, which furthered Casey's popularity. And some general remedies for the public may not have much effect at all. I wouldn't ask for proof of that because that agrees with my sense of reason and the trend of my own mind. And I know it's kind of the middle ground on belief. But if you said the remedies were absolutely harmful or caused death, I'd want to see proof of that, just as I would if one claimed the remedies were 100% effective. And I think evidence could be produced by institutional research either way, just like for the medieval antibiotic remedy, but I wouldn't hold my breath. So as for proof of the continent of Atlantis existing, that's a physical matter, albeit challenging, and archaeological evidence could one day be found. But the proof of a landmass once existing is different than evidence of an extinct civilization with technology that far surpasses our own, because that comes with hard-to-accept implications. Like, if the legend of Atlantis is true, what else about our accepted history of humanity is false? And if there is a Hall of Records to be found, and its discovery changes a lot of what we believe about ourselves, I personally don't think something like that will be discovered until we're ready, or... It's been decided by higher powers that it's time we knew. And then finally, there's the question of our spiritual history within the story of Atlantis. What should we believe is true about this wild and outrageous tale? Well, I think the answer is, it doesn't matter if we believe any of it, because that's not the point of the story, and the main purpose of this Atlantis legend being revealed in the readings. Like most fables and allegories and cautionary tales, The point is not whether we believe they actually happened, but whether we can find truth in their message and apply it to our own lives. It doesn't matter really where the information is coming from. You look at the message. And the truth in the message for me in Casey's story of Atlantis is a universal one. And it's a simple one. Don't keep repeating the mistakes of our past, whether you believe in reincarnation or not. There is still time to change our ways in order to live better, more meaningful, and positive lives. Because the most important truth in the story of Atlantis is this, that spiritual growth, whatever that may mean for you, leads to personal growth. That what we all need to work on most of this life or any other is being a kinder, more decent and tolerant person, a better friend, a better family member, a better neighbor, a better citizen. If we can all remember to do that, Imagine how fantastic and wonderful our own legends could be.
0: That's going to wrap up part three of our three-part series on Edgar Casey. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new show. A reminder that permission has been granted by the Edgar Casey Foundation to share the portions of his readings that we quoted in tonight's show. The readings are the property of the foundation and copyrighted in 1971, as well as from 1993 to 2007. All rights reserved.
1: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin.
0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Cox, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Tonight's show was
1: edited by Chris Potter at RumbleJar.com and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com
0: astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions.
1: Good night.